Election Night 2022. The longest evenly divided Senate is likely about to come to an end. Who will take control? I think Democrats right now would win a majority in the Senate. Republicans are still favored to capture the House. The Senate is essentially a toss-up. The race to control both houses of Congress and the Michigan State Legislature are all hanging in the balance, with economic issues playing a key role. Joe Biden owns this inflation problem. I'm doing everything in my power to blunt Putin's gas price hike. Abortion has inflamed tensions. And with your support, I'll sign a law codifying Roe in January. From the Hillsdale City Council. Why, why are your roads not fixed? I would not have a problem with an ordinance outlawing pitbulls in this city. To statewide ballot referendums. So it's a very dangerous, very evil proposal. Proposal two on the ballot. And races across the country. As the governor of Georgia, I will work very closely with the Federal Reserve. And when I get to the U.S. Senate, I will not forget about you. The team at Radio Free Hillsdale is watching the results that matter to you. Our eyes are there. More breaking news in the state of Louisiana. Two different visions are on the ballot. Which will prevail? Let's keep building back better. We have to eliminate this permanent ruling class in Washington. Freedom is worth fighting for. The coverage starts... Now. Good evening and welcome to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. I'm your host, Josh Barker. I'm the program director here at WRFH and host of The Policy Corner, a George Washington fellow and senior at Hillsdale College studying politics and economics. And I'm thrilled that you are joining us for an exciting evening. I'll be joined live by a few student panels starting at 8 p.m., and then we're looking forward to hearing from some live guests in our 9 and 10 p.m. hours, including James David Dixon, the managing editor of the Michigan Capital Confidential, and Joseph Postel, associate professor of politics here at Hillsdale College. You'll also hear shortly from Christina Caramo, a Republican candidate for Michigan Secretary of State, Gary Wolfram, professor of economics and candidate for Hillsdale City Council, and Brian Phillips, the chief communications officer down at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So tonight we have a lot in store. It's just half past the hour, and that means that polls just closed in the battleground state of Ohio, as well as North Carolina and West Virginia. We'll be watching those races, especially the Senate race in Ohio, which has garnered a lot of national attention. With that, here's Michaela Ashtruth with the details of the Ohio Senate race. The state of Ohio has leaned Republican for most of the last 30 years. However, tonight that may change. Currently, all the statewide officials, both houses of the state legislature, 12 of its 16 congressmen, and one of its two senators are Republican. Despite this, the Ohio Senate race remains up in the air. Incumbent Senator Rob Portman, a Republican, is retiring, leaving the seat open. Vying to replace Portman is Democrat Congressman Tim Ryan, who represents Ohio's 17th district in the House of Representatives, and Republican J.D. Vance, an attorney and venture capitalist best known for authoring a New York Times best-selling autobiography, Hillbilly Elegy. In 2020, Donald Trump won the state of Ohio by eight points. 53 to 45. However, in 2018, Democrat Senator Sherrod Brown held his own with a 53 to 47% win against a Republican challenger. Current polling has Vance narrowly ahead of Ryan, but anything could happen tonight. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage in just under half an hour polls close here in Michigan. And certainly there's a lot to talk about with our state's politics, from the governor's race between incumbent Gresham Whitmer and Republican challenger Tudor Dixon, to our three statewide ballot propositions and the testy Hillsdale local elections. We'll cover it all. 
Earlier last week, Radio Free Hillsdale Scott Bertram spoke to Secretary of State candidate Christina Caramo about her race. Take a listen to that. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Scott Bertram, and with me today is Christina Caramo. She is the Secretary of State candidate, Republican, here in Michigan. Christina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Checking in here with just days to go before Election Day. How are you feeling? What are you hearing from people on the ground? How do you feel about the way things will go next week? I'm feeling extremely excited about Election Day. We've been working really hard. We've done over 350 events across the state of Michigan. We've been working very hard to push into non-traditional Republican spaces to talk to people about why the Office for Secretary of State is so critical for the well-being of the state of Michigan. This is really not a partisan role, irrespective of political affiliation. Everyone wants efficient and friendly service at their branch offices and wants secure and honest elections. This is why this race is so critical. And so we're really trying to share with people that many citizens, irrespective of party, have the same concerns regarding the Secretary of State's office. And I'm committed to serving all Michiganders. And so we're really displaying how I will be depoliticizing the office of Michigan Secretary of State to ensure that people are well taken care of. Christina Caramo is with us. She's the Republican candidate for Secretary of State in Michigan. You just told us one of your goals for the office is to depoliticize the Secretary of State's office. Should we read into that, that our current Secretary of State has been too politicized for the role? Yeah, she's making decisions that are clearly designed to disenfranchise concerned citizens, and she's using the office to give people an advantage outside of the law. Uh, The reality is the Secretary of State should not be about putting their finger on the scale to make it an advantage or disadvantage others. You're simply supposed to just follow the law. It is up to the legislatures to determine how our elections are to be ran. The Secretary of State is supposed to ensure that the laws are complied with. Uh, My opponent has been slapped down by a judge for the fifth time regarding uh, her breaking of the law. This recent, as about two weeks ago, for her breaking of the Administrative Procedures Act, again, and also for her breaking Michigan election law, suppressing the rights of poll challengers. My opponent is going around making false claims on the media that there will probably be violence and disruption on Election Day. There is no evidence to corroborate that claim. If I was Secretary of State and there was threats of violence and disruption on Election Day against our clerks and election workers, I would not be going to the media. I would be going to the police filing uh, incident reports and things of that nature. I would not be going to the media. My opponent has provided no evidence to back up this claim. We recently filed a lawsuit in the city of Detroit Mm -hmm. regarding their usage of a machine which is completely illegal. This is a privately funded machine, $750,000 privately funded machine, partially funded by the Center for Technology and Civic Life, which we know is uh, funded solely by uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So you have a California billionaire bankrolling aspects of Michigan's election and bankrolling a machine that's illegal for use in our elections that are, quote-unquote, verifying signatures in Detroit, when in reality it's the Board of Election Inspectors that's supposed to do that. So when we put out our lawsuit, my opponent's response is that we're all lying. But for her to say that, when there's evidence, there's a paper trail, there's purchase orders of this machine, and the law is clear, uh, for her just to respond, they're all lying. It just shows you what this woman is up to. She's a radical ideologue not a public servant about following the law. And we can't have this in our elections because when you think about it, this is the only way we, the people, maintain control of our government. In the state of Michigan, the Secretary of State's race used to only be about a $500,000 race. 
this cycle, my opponent has had over $8 million in support. That makes no sense. And an overwhelming majority of the funds come from out of Michigan. So this is why this is so dangerous. Michiganders are on the verge of losing control of Michigan. This is not happening for no reason that you have Bloomberg and Soros pumping millions upon millions. I mean, Bloomberg just put in another $2 million into the Michigan SOS race. Why are they doing this? Why does Bloomberg care about the Michigan Secretary of State race? That should tell you something. It's not over driver's license. It's over about control of our election system. And so this should encourage people to really ensure that they get out and vote and vote for me, Christina Karamo, for Secretary of State. Because I don't have some secret agenda or I don't have some secret donors. No, I'm just an everyday mom from Michigan who wants to ensure that my children live free and that we maintain control of our elections and they operate per the rule of law. That's simple. So that should people need to really understand what's going on here. This is not your typical Secretary of State's race. There might be voters who uh, admit that the current Secretary of State is not doing a great job, but perhaps you're not convinced that you deserve a vote. What is your affirmative case to vote for Christina Caramo for Secretary of State? We have a plan. I have a team of former SOS agents already assembled to hit the ground running, and I have an understanding of our election system. I have been able to talk in great detail about the various needs that are required to improve the quality of our elections. When it comes to managing our voter registration database, that's one pillar of ensuring that we have an accurate election. This is not a complicated thing. Even though it is a dynamic system maintaining our voter registration database, people move, people die, people turn 18 constantly. However, the Secretary of State has all the necessary tools in their purview to ensure that they can have an accurate voter registration database. And with so many Michiganders exercising their constitutional right to vote absentee, we need to ensure that that voter registration database is accurate. Additionally, we need to ensure that we're securing the process. Michigan lacks the necessary chain of custody procedures, especially in terms of our absentee ballots. As I just previously mentioned, that people have a constitutional right to vote absentee. People also have a constitutional right to a secure election. And so I have a plan of deploying the necessary chain of custody procedure, the way every step of the way we can assure that the absentee ballot is being handled securely. And additionally, we're going to have increased oversight, and we want to encourage citizen participation in a lawful manner, not disruptive, but in a lawful manner to ensure that we have more confidence in our system. Also, in terms of our branch office operations, we need our walk-in and appointment system. I have no intention on doing away with the appointment system because it does benefit a lot of people's lives. However, we need to ensure that we also have the walk-in system because especially for low-income people who many times are unbanked or underbanked and also seniors, the walk-in system is necessary for them because getting an appointment can be very difficult because of maybe lack of Internet or computer access, but also the inability to navigate the realities of the Internet for that can be difficult for many seniors. Mm-hmm. Also, one of the things that I'm committed to doing is working with our legislature to identify every area we can lower the cost of business for people as they go into branch offices. The SOS brings in about $2.9 billion a year into the state of Michigan. Only 7% of that actually goes to running the Michigan Department of State. So it's safe to point out that people of Michigan are paying way too much money inside the Secretary of State's office. So I will be committed to working to lower those fees. So I am here because I love the state of Michigan. I have no other agenda. My background is in education. I prefer my quiet life. However, sometimes You have to step out there and do something that is necessary in order to maintain our freedom. And I'm committed to freedom. So if you want to be free and ensure that you have control of the election system, not an individual managing corruption, then you need to vote for Christina Caramo for Michigan Secretary of State. Christina Caramo, again, on the ballot Tuesday for Secretary of State. Republican, Christina, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Thank you. God bless.
Turning our attention nationwide, there are many important elections across the country. Radio Free Hillsdale's Nathaniel Privet caught up with Brian Phillips, the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, to talk about some of the important races down there as well as key issues for voters in Texas. Take a listen. Welcome back to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Nathaniel Privet, and it is my honor to introduce Brian Phillips, the Chief Communications Officer at Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is a nonprofit conservative think tank down in Austin, Texas. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, and um, it's great to be on. Today, we are going to be talking about the upcoming elections in Texas. And I think the biggest election that we should talk about is, of course, the governorship. So, Brian, who's incumbent? What's the things that they have done? And how are they running their election right now? And then who are their big opponents coming into this? Sure. So the incumbent is Greg Abbott. This is going to be his third time that he's run. He's been in office for two terms now. And our elections are really interesting for governor because they're never during the presidential election. So we always elect our governor during the midterms. And so this would be his third time running. Issues that he really wants to highlight are really the economic resilience of Texas, particularly coming off of the pandemic. Texas was one of the states that returned all of the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. Texas was one of the states that returned those jobs the fastest. I think we're one of four states at the end of 2020 that had gotten all those jobs back. And so he wants to run on his economic record. Certainly, Texas is a place where we have people tripping over themselves to come and and live here, a place like Austin and Houston and Dallas. Populations are exploding. I think we have over almost two million more registered voters in Texas than we did four years ago. Wow. He's running on that success. And then, of course, the challenges that we have here running on his record of addressing those challenges, number one being the border. Obviously, the border is really a federal issue. And so you've got this tension between what the state can do and what the federal government should be doing. Of course, the Biden administration is doing very little. People are looking for Greg Abbott and looking for some leadership at the state level, which he has done over the past year or so in something that he calls the Operation Lone Star, which is really aggressive state effort to try and stop people from entering the state illegally. I think that and then the crime issue is also another big one here in Texas and how he's been addressing that. Um, Certainly the electrical grid, we had the, the grid failure of 2021, which a lot of people blame him for, frankly. He has had to describe his efforts to make sure that that never happens again. And so that's the record that he's running on. Somebody who is running against him, who might be familiar to even audiences in the North, Beto O'Rourke. He ran against Ted Cruz in 2018. He was a new, exciting candidate. The next Robert Kennedy is what a lot of people called him in 2018. (laughs) Uh, Came very, very close to beating Ted Cruz in that election. That was really a wave for Democrats. You had Trump backlash from people. You had Ted Cruz, who's a very polarizing candidate at the top of the ticket, even in Texas. And then you had this new and exciting candidate, Beto O'Rourke. And so he came very, very close in 2018. And then, of course, he, he used that to springboard into a presidential run, which was, by all intents and purposes, a total failure. His luster has sort of diminished since then, but he is making a third attempt now to run in Texas and running against Greg Abbott. His, his issues are he's running against the record of Abbott and he's you know, criticizing the things that, that Abbott has done. But he's also running on, obviously, the abortion question, right? Like, so we had the Dobbs case that everyone's very familiar with. Uh, mm-hmm. sending that decision back to the states. And so he's running to protect abortion rights. He's running on a lot of boilerplate left-wing issues like climate change, 
and Medicaid expansion. We had the, the awful, awful tragedy that happened in Uvalde with the school shooting. He's made that part of his campaign as well, trying to pin those issues on Abbott. You have two very different campaigns, two very different campaign messages and issues all coming to a head here in a couple of days. So we've got economics and we've got border policy and we have crime. Do you find that these topics are what's pushing voters in their local elections or the other offices that are up for grabs this time around? So could you speak on what voters are thinking about for their local elections? So the one thing that is creating a wet blanket over all of the races, particularly for Democrats, is just Joe Biden's total unpopularity in the state of Texas. We have left-leaning independents and we have a base of Democrats of about, you know, 25 to 30 percent. And his favorability in Texas is is barely 35 (laughs) percent. And so, you know, he should be much closer to, you know, with the left-leaners and independents and moderates, he should be much closer to 42, 45 percent just as a base. And so you're losing 10 percent of the people who should just naturally favor you. And Mm. so that is a really big red flag. But I don't think Biden's been to Texas. I don't think he's asked him to come to Texas. His unpopularity, particularly on economic issues, inflation, gas prices, kitchen table economics, has really dragged Democrats down in every race from dog catcher all the way up to governor. In particular, in South Texas, It's very interesting. You know, when economics is the number one issue, usually what pollsters look at and what researchers look at is it's not really that voters follow GDP numbers or it's not like they're following the specific ins and outs of macroeconomic trends and things like that. What we usually look at is if the economy is not doing well, that's a sign that the country is not doing well. It's really kind of a proxy for how are my neighbors doing? You look at polls and people will tell you, oh, you know, I'm okay, or I'm making more money than I used to, but I still have what we call this economic malaise, this economic Mm. anxiety about the country. And it just means we're not moving in the right direction. And and that's generally how people look at the economy stupid, or if the economy is doing bad, then the ruling party is probably going to get flipped. It's interesting. You have in South Texas, it's much more personal. You have this trend in South Texas of people who were lifelong Democrats now shifting from 2016 and voting for Trump, 2018 voting for Cruz, 2020 staying with Trump. This issue of, of economics is very personal to them. It's not just about the direction of the country or the state. And that what they're telling us, particularly in the Hispanic communities, is who cares about my ability to provide for my family? Whereas in the 2020 election, you had a lot of suburban moms who really didn't like Trump. And that's probably a lot of the reason why he ended up losing. People thought he was a bad example for their kids and they didn't like his combative nature and all of that. But for every suburban mom that had that opinion, there was a Hispanic mom in South Texas who thought Donald Trump was the only person who cared about their ability to provide for their family. Mm. That issue, because economics is not on a macro level for them, it, it is digested in a very personal way. That's why you're starting to see this shift. You have races down there, three in particular, and I'll highlight one. Cassie Garcia in Texas 28 is running against a five-time incumbent, Henry Cuellar. Henry Cuellar is a very conservative Democrat. I mean, he's anti-abortion. He has some good issues on the border. But the fact is that, you know, Cassie's running a very, very strong campaign, raising a lot of money, talking about these economic issues and blaming a lot of it on Democrats and Biden. That's made her a very strong candidate. Six months ago, she would have been a fringe win. A lot of money is being put on her actually winning this race. That's a real bellwether race. There are two other races down there. 
Maya Flores, and one other in, in Texas 15. And those three races are the ones that people are looking at. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. I'm Nathaniel Privet, joined by Brian Phillips. Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. For those just tuning in, I'm Josh Barker. The city of Hillsdale, our home base, has several local elections on the ballot tonight, including several open city council seats. I sat down with Gary Wolfram, who is running for one of those seats in Ward 3. He's the William Simon Professor of Economics and Public Policy here at Hillsdale College and a candidate for the Hillsdale City Council seat for Ward 3. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Wolfram. Well, thanks for having me. Now, you've worked all over. You've been here since 1989, but you've also served stints in D.C. as Chief of Staff and Chief Economist for Congressman Nick Smith. End up in Lansing. You're a Senior Economist for the State Senate and later Deputy State Treasurer here in Michigan. You've decided to run this November for City Council. Why and why now? Well, uh, for a couple of reasons, but one is that, you know, I want to use my experience from, like you said, being chief of staff to a congressman and deputy state treasurer here in Michigan, and to use that as a method of trying to get Hillsdale basically some extra attention from the state legislature. So, for example, uh, rehabilitation grants. Hillsdale should be having a good shot at getting that, but you have to connect, right? politics is like the who you know theory of the labor market. I think I can use, I mean, we can talk in a moment about the roads and revenue sharing and the like, but that is something that I think that we we could really focus on. And I think I could make a, a difference in that. Another reason is because city council has been relatively negative and I just want to have a positive voice there. One of the other city council members, Greg Stuchel, had said that he would run again if I ran. Uh, just to have another positive voice there. And so I think it's important that people should think that their city council has a positive view about the community. Our community is doing extremely well in terms of rehabilitation. The Don Theater is back. It's a new Don because uh, it was supposed to, you know, it started in 1919. Yeah. Um, the Kiefer House Hotel is likely to be done mid 23 to end of 23. And it would have been done sooner, but I don't know if anybody filed. There was a thing called COVID that hit. Uh, <laughs> and lumber prices skyrocketed and all sorts of problems. Uh, but it's now functioning and uh, moving ahead. So that's another thing. And there's been several people that are buying up properties downtown, fixing up uh, buildings. And that's all a positive. We talk about positive externalities in my class. You know, when you fix up your building, it increases the value of the buildings around it. And that's what we've been doing. We have a heritage community. I mean, the Kiefer House was built in 1885, right? And it's still there uh, and it's being redone. So I'm excited about what the future of the city of Hillsdale looks like. And I think I can add to that. And one of the big local issues is the roads. Road funding has decreased. Road quality has plummeted in the city. It's a tough situation. Tell us about that and what would your plans be, that positive vision, how to improve the situation? It's vital that we have an increase in the revenue sharing. Let me just give you some numbers. Well, do you have... You have statutory revenue sharing, which is by law, and then you have constitutional revenue sharing. For example, the Constitution requires a certain amount of the sales tax to be turned to local units. And local units get to share in, for example, the income tax. I mean, the idea is you collect the income tax statewide, uh, and then you share that back out to cities, villages, and townships. 
But we had two major things happen. Uh, first of all, we had the decline in 2008 from the recession there. And then we had this odd situation with what was Proposal A that passed in 1993. But if you look at statutory revenue sharing, just the money that went from the state government to the local governments, went from $684 million in fiscal year 2001 down to $210 million by fiscal year 2012. And the last fiscal year, it had only recovered to $266 million. And that's in nominal dollars. So it's down $400 million in nominal dollars since it was in 2001. What does that tell you? It tells you that we're not going to fix, as the governor <laughs> said, the damn roads, right? And because if I'm, uh, you know, if you're the city, you have to fund the police, you have to fund the fire. Uh, and if you're going to fix the roads, what do you do? You fix the roads that you can get a match with, which means that it is the trunk lines. So what do you see? M99 gets right. fixed, right? But my road, Corona Circle, as in the virus, um, <laughs> Used to be as in the beer. But anyway, so it doesn't get fixed. And uh, it turns out that the longer that you leave a road, the more expensive it is. The marginal cost of fixing it gets greater. And so the revenue sharing just collapsed. Well, at the same time, Proposal A, when it passed in 1993, the idea wasn't that property values could ever fall. So what does it say? It says that your tax, your assessed value can't go up by more than 5% or the rate of inflation, whichever is less. So then what happens? There's a crash and it goes down from, let's say, 200000 to 140000 okay? It can't get back up to 200000 within a year or two years. What happens is it can only go up by 5% or the rate of inflation, whichever is less. So if you look at taxable values in 2008, it fell by $48 billion statewide by 2013, and it fell from $363 billion to $315 billion. It didn't hit $363 billion again until 2019. The latest number is $391 billion. The assessed value, which is the taxable value, if, uh, uh, was $510 billion. So that means we're over a decade, like what's happened? We have this collapse in revenue sharing. We have that we can't get our property values back to where they were. And so cities, villages, and townships are having all sorts of problems. And where do you delay? You don't not hire the police. Right? <laughs> right. Right. So what you do is you delay fixing the roads. And so it's not a matter that, you know, your local governments have just like goofed up and have spent, you know, outrageously. Their revenue sources have just collapsed. And so I'm arguing that one of the main things and what the state ought to be doing is that ought to be increasing revenue sharing and getting back to the way it was back in, at least if you got it back to where, to where it was, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, you'd be back in good shape. You've been listening to Gary Wolfram, professor of economics and candidate for city council here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM election night coverage. Thank you very much. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. We're approaching the top of the hour. Live coverage begins at 8 p.m. here on the East Coast, and I'll be joined by Avery Noah, Luke Spangler, and Haley Strack. Polls closing here in Michigan in just under four minutes. Thank you for joining us. The coverage continues momentarily.
We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Our collective futures depends on your willingness to uphold your duties as a citizen, to vote. We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. Your vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful non-violent tool we have to create a more perfect union. November 8th, 2022, the day is finally here. With the Senate evenly split, Republicans and Democrats have spent the past two years warring over policy issues. Federal spending. We have the money in our accounts to do what is right. Money delivered by federal Democrats. I'd call it the Build Back Broke plan. I mean, it's $555 billion for Biden's job-killing energy agenda that will increase energy prices on every American household. Inflation. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price hike. I call it Biden inflation because they're printing trillions of dollars. It's causing everything to go up. This inflation is real. It's harming people. That's a tax. And it continues to increase. It's not decreasing. Foreign policy. Liberty, democracy, human dignity. These are the forces far more powerful than fear and oppression. They cannot be extinguished by tyrants like Putin and his armies. The Biden administration's reckless decision to retreat from Afghanistan was carried through to a damaging and deadly end. Four terrorists, once detained at Guantanamo Bay, now hold senior positions in the Taliban regime. Abortion. The Republican-controlled Supreme Court has achieved their dark, extreme goal of ripping away a woman's right to make their own reproductive health decisions. And you should understand her position. It's extremely radical. It's abortion up to the moment of birth. The culture. I mean, the fact that they want to sexualize our children and our children's childhoods for their own political agenda is incredibly disturbing. The states that are introducing the anti-critical race theory laws. There are two visions for America. Our democracy is at stake. So we have an opportunity to make 2022 the year that America fought back. The results come soon and it all starts now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Live from the Cyril Center at Hillsdale College, you're listening to Election Night 2022. Thank you for joining us. This is WRFHLP Hillsdale. I'm your host, Josh Barker, and it is 8 p.m., which means the polls have just closed across the nation, including in our home state of Michigan. 16 states across the nation all closed their polls. Another four have closed most of them. So the entire East Coast, with the exception of New York State, which closes at 9, they're all closed, which means results will be coming soon. Some of the key races we're watching, Georgia and Pennsylvania, just closed, so we'll be getting those resort results shortly. Georgia, we've already got a little bit since they closed last hour at 7 p.m., still early in the night. This hour, you'll hear from former State Representative Eric Lloyd-Hoyser, Professor of Economics and former Deputy State Treasurer Gary Wolfram. But right now, we're going to start with the people right next to me, our all-star student panel, on what they expect to see tonight. Joining me here uh, for those in person, two 
the far right, Haley Strack, senior reporter for The Collegian. Luke Spangler, Jr. at Hillsdale, studying economics and French. And on the left, Avery Noel, co-president of the Hillsdale College Democrats, also a junior studying economics. Luke, let's set up the night for everyone, uh, focusing federally right now with Congress. 435 seats up in the House of Representatives, as it is every two years. Um, we've got another 34 Senate seats. Where are your eyes? What, what are you looking at? Uh, and what should people know about what's going on tonight? I'm looking at the races we thought were going to be competitive going to the night, uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, um, which we don't really have votes, uh, a lot of votes in from yet. Um, uh, looking at all these other races, Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis have been called immediately at poll closing in Florida, uh, voting for potentially a positive Republican night. But looking elsewhere, it uh, looks to be holding up with expectations where Republicans should have uh, a decent night. Um, but I'm also noticing uh, Republican Senate candidates are tending to do uh, worse statewide in most states than their governor counterparts. Um, I saw someone on Twitter gave a pithy quote about this. He said, divided government is good, but the candidates required to achieve divided government are less good, um, which is, I think, what we're seeing this year with uh, candidate quality and um, uh, across the toss-up races this year. As far as many people have on their mind, what exactly will we know tonight? Do you think we'll have a final answer on House and Senate tonight, or might this go into tomorrow and even later in the week? Uh, yes, I think we'll know. I think major networks will call the House by probably about 11 p.m. tonight. Um, they won't call every single House race individually, but their models will project an overall Republican win probably by about that time. It's looking likely. Um, we have a few first pickups at this hour in Florida for the Republicans and soon probably Virginia. Um, the Senate, on the other hand, it might be in the days and weeks ahead uh, because of the slow process of counting some absentee votes, especially particularly in Pennsylvania, Arizona, and um, how tight Georgia is looking to be. Haley Strack, senior reporter for the Collegian. Uh, Haley, you've done some analysis of this. Uh, there's lots of pullings, especially in the battleground state, but a fair amount of it is within the margin of error, uh, especially late in October. Uh, tell me about some of that. In some of these battleground races, what are you seeing and what do you expect to come out of tonight? Absolutely. We're seeing races tighten to four or five points in key states like Arizona and Georgia, Michigan, uh, New York even, which is a surprise to everyone, Ohio and Pennsylvania. So those are the states we're really going to be keeping an eye on for now. Already in Georgia, we're getting some reports back uh, that Warnock is doing 12% better than expected, uh, especially in urban areas right now. So that's already not looking too promising for Walker, um, although Walker is still slated to come out on top. Especially the Arizona gubernatorial and senatorial elections, all of these races are races in which Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, has heavily endorsed candidates, um, and that paid off dividends for Kerry Lake and Blake Masters, who are both predicted to win tonight based on polling and betting records. Um, in New York, we've had a huge upset with Kathy Hochul uh, and her, her Republican opponent. Kathy is still expected to win. She's still projected, of course. And in the Ohio Senate, J.D. Vance is well expected to take another win. Um, the Oregon Oregon gubernatorial race, Josh, especially, I think we need to keep an eye on tonight because while uh, the Democrat incumbent is still expected to win, it, it could be a huge upset, especially for the Republican who I think is pulling around 40% right now, uh, which, is, which is wild, especially in Oregon. We're seeing trends in Oregon and New York that more Republican voters are showing up to the polls. Right now, we already have reports that Republican voters are showing up more than they ever have before, uh, which is great news. 
And, and with Oregon, it's, it's important to note there, uh, of course, my home state of Georgia is uh, famous for their uh, requiring 50% to win an election. Oregon, that's not the case because we, we have a, a third-party challenger uh, in, in that gubernatorial race. So, I mean, when you say 40%, that's actually very huge because the Democrat uh, candidate, when you're combining them, they're at 60% or so. But that's still, you know, I, last I saw it was like around 30, 32% for the Democrat and then the third-party challenger, if I recall. Right, and the third-party challenger right now, excitement over the last two or three weeks for her has gone down increasingly. And so we're going to see those votes shift to the Democrat incumbent, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, it should be an exciting race. Avery Noel, the co-president of Hillsdale College Democrats. Avery, Democrats came into 2022, lots of setbacks, uh, many people unhappy with inflation, the economy, general state of things, and people were anticipating potentially Republicans sweeping the House and the Senate. And then May happened, and June happened. Uh, I, I was in D.C., I saw some of those protests. Do you think uh, Dobbs was a game changer? And, and do you think perhaps it might be as negative as some people are anticipating uh, you know, some of Haley's predictions that she, she just discussed. Yeah, I think abortion rights for Democrats are the key issue that they're running on across the country. Um, and it's really interesting to see, especially in states like Ohio and states like Pennsylvania, where these issues aren't necessarily at the forefront for voters to see how those Senate candidates fare. Uh, I'm particularly looking at um, Ryan in Ohio, I think his candidacy is a little bit underrated in terms of how he tended to address Ohio voters. He tended to come at more of a moderate stance, attempting to appeal to more blue-collar voters than most Democrats have around the country, because I think most Democrats, as you said, have focused on the Dobbs decision and have made it very clear that reproductive rights are the issue that they're running on. And I think that's really, it's really shocking to see, honestly, how close the Senate is considering that we're in a year where Joe Biden is extremely unpopular. Inflation is ravaging the country, according to the Republican candidates, um, and the economy is failing, according to Republican candidates. I think it's very surprising to see in a midterm year that the president might con president's party at least might maintain control of at least one of the chambers of congress is that what you anticipate a, a maintain maintenance of the senate the at 50 50 or maybe even 51 for the democrats yeah my prediction coming into tonight was actually 52 seats for democrats obviously i'm partisan so it's a bit of an optimistic expectation but i've got uh, I think that Ryan will carry. I feel that Fetterman will carry. And I think holds in Arizona and Nevada, New Hampshire, Washington are imminent as well. Luke Spangler, our uh, economics and French major. Uh, redistricting happens every 10 years. And that's definitely something that I know you followed closely, probably closer than anyone here at Hillsdale. Uh, Many are saying that there's a lot of gerrymandering going on and perhaps that will benefit Republicans. What, what do you see as far as redistricting goes in affecting the results in the House? Do you think that will be decisive or, or how does that play a role in tonight's results? Uh, no, I don't think it will be decisive in the flipping of the House. Um, generally, the consensus was that re uh, redistricting gained Republicans probably about two seats uh, um, on average. However, um, We've already seen the results of it tonight in Florida, where Ron DeSantis, the newly re-elected governor of Florida, um, 
pushed his state legislature to do a pretty aggressive gerrymander, and we've seen already one flip in the state of Florida in the House tonight as a result of that. Right, before we go, uh, Haley and Avery, I want to get both of you uh, your highlight issues of what you think are driving voters this evening in their votes. What do you think those key issues are for them? Starting with you, Haley. Just like Avery said, inflation and reproductive rights, abortion right now, I think the reason why we're seeing so many Republicans show up to the polls is to fight back uh, against both of these issues. And I think, I mean, a lot of people have platformed on this. Also, election denial, as we see with the Trump-endorsed candidates who have really shot ahead in the polls, especially in their primaries. Um, Election fraud is a huge issue for Republican voters right now. Yeah, as I said, I think abortion rights are on the ballot for Democrats. Uh, And you see that directly in some state elections as well when there are referendums that are either looking to ban abortion outright or establish abortion as a right in the state constitution here in Michigan. That's one example of those. And I think that, as Haley said, election denial is huge, especially when you look in cases like Arizona, um, even Georgia as well. It's a little concerning. Indiana, my home state also, Secretary of State, was fraught with an election denier, and we'll see how that turns out. All right, well, we are getting ready to head into a short break. The following features that you're about to hear are on some of our local races uh, here in the state of Michigan, Michigan gubernatorial election, and Hillsdale's home state uh, house race, District 35, currently held by Andrew Fink. After that, we'll be right back to talk about some of the races across the country with some more of our student panelists. Don't go anywhere. Live election night coverage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7. We'll be right back. Tonight, Governor Gretchen Whitmer is going head-to-head with Tudor Dixon in the race for Michigan governor. The Real Clear Politics average has Whitmer ahead by a few points. In 2018, she won with 53% of the vote, compared to Republican Bill Schuette's 44%. However, things have changed since 2018. Generally, that was a very good year for Democrats as they took control of the House of Representatives in Congress. The Michigan delegation, for example, went from nine Republicans and five Democrats to tied at seven and seven. While they didn't gain control of the state legislature, Democrats gained five seats in the state House and another five in the state Senate. In 2020, Biden won by a much narrower margin of 51 to 48 percent. In 2022, the environment is much less favorable to Democrats nationwide, and it's likely to have an effect on the gubernatorial election here in Michigan. Whitmer's popularity has also receded throughout her term as many Michiganders became frustrated with the COVID-19 lockdowns, forcing children out of school and many businesses closed for months. After her lockdown executive orders were found unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court, the governor turned to issuing orders through the Public Health Department and the Department of Health and Human Services. While the legislature has attempted to pass legislation limiting the emergency powers of the governor, making it subject to expiration or consideration by the legislature as a lawmaking body, Governor Whitmer has vetoed every bill that would limit the governor's powers. In the summer of 2021, the legislature voted to enact a ballot initiative that repealed the 1945 Emergency Powers Law, a method not subject to a veto. However, despite Whitmer's COVID troubles, Dixon has certainly faced an uphill battle. While she gained on Whitmer in polling throughout October, narrowing the governor's lead, she has been plagued by the issue of abortion in particular. With Dobbs in June, the attention of many has turned to abortion in the midterms. However, Dixon's comments in July arguing against allowing abortion, even in cases of rape, drew some criticism. Here's her reasoning. Because I know people who are the product. I'd like us a life for me. That's how it is. We'll be watching the race for Michigan governor.
With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters reporting. A couple of races have already been decided in the Senate. Victories have already been declared for Republican Rand Paul in Kentucky. Republican Tim Scott won re-election in South Carolina, while Democrat Peter Welsh was elected from Vermont to replace retiring Senator Patrick Leahy. In Virginia, Democratic Representatives Abigail Spanberger and Elaine Lurie are, are fending off spirited Republican opponents. The results there could serve as early signals of where the House majority is heading. The outcome of congressional races will determine the future of President Joe Biden's agenda and serve as a referendum on his administration amid record high inflation and concerns about democracy. On Wall Street, the Dow by 333 points. The Nasdaq rose 51. The S&P advanced 21. This is SRN News. Live from the Serial Center at Hillsdale College, this is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, election night coverage. Quarter past the hour, and we're back. I'm Josh Barker, and thank you for tuning in to Radio Free Hillsdale live election night coverage. I'm joined this segment by three more great students. I have Thomas McKenna right here, freshman studying political economy at Hillsdale College, writer for The Collegian. Uh, Connor Bolanos, a senior Winston Churchill fellow at Hillsdale College and host of Defense Now, as well as History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillsdale. And Tully Mitchell, freshman studying classics from Alabama. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, Thomas, I want to start with you. You're from Northern Virginia, and you have your ear on some of the house races there. Uh, to districts 2 and 7 both are certainly uh, being looked at. These are seats that, especially in recent elections, have been leaning blue, if not more solidly so. Politico last week both were marked as toss-ups. Um, District 7 certainly had interesting results last November uh, in the gubernatorial race. Uh, so t- tell us about that. Abigail Spanberger, uh, of course, is currently representing that district. Uh, Yesley Vega running as a Republican challenger. What's going on there? Well, everybody's got their eyes on the House races in Virginia this year, especially the Virginia 7th. Both uh, political report House editor Dave Wasserman and Republican analyst Carl Rove said that these are races they're going to be watching. Right now in the Virginia 7th, Yesley Vega, with about 45% of the vote in, she's up 54 to 45 on Democrat incumbent Abigail Spanberger. But we do want to note that we also see Prince William County just coming in with 20% of their votes in, and Spanberger is leading well there. So Prince William and Stafford County are going to be key for that race as we go forward throughout the night. The other thing to note is that we're also seeing high turnout in rural counties in that district. And rural counties historically have tended to vote more Republican. So that's something that Vega is certainly looking at tonight. Yeah, and so for for our listeners, the geography there, uh, obviously District 7 borders on the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., close to the outskirts, Prince William County, uh, that's the closest county to the district in District 7, right, to, to D.C. That's right. And the Virginia 7th has a good mix of the demographics we'll see throughout the country, including, you know, suburban women as well as voters in the rural areas of the county. Connor, you're from Illinois. Uh, and let's just say, I mean, even we were mentioning last segment, New York has some people curious, eh, will there be an upset? I don't think anyone's wondering, will Illinois flip to Republicans? Why should we care about Illinois? What, what, what races are going on there that are particularly interesting to you? 
So obviously the Senate and the governorship I don't really think are in contest. I'm pretty sure looking at New York Times, they pretty much immediately called uh, the Senate for Tammy Duckworth without any votes in whatsoever. Um, but the races that are more so interesting that are really important to look at are the ballot measures in the uh, collect- Illinois' collective bargaining amendment in addition to the two open seats on the Illinois Supreme Court. Experts say that this is really the only the first chance the Republicans will have in 50 years in order to win back those two seats on the Supreme Court in the uh, second and third uh, Supreme Court districts, where in the second district you have uh, Democrat Elizabeth Rockford against the Republican Mark Curran, and in the third district you have the incumbent justice who was redistricted into the third Supreme Court district, Mike Burke, against Democrat Mary O'Brien. I think it's going to be a bit of an uphill, though, battle for the Republicans in this front, especially since issues such as abortion do rank high on the list of things in Supreme Court and kind of judicial races in contrast to the other races where we've kind of seen the economy coming out as the number one issue. And I think in a state like Illinois, which has a kind of partisan, you could say, uh, Supreme Court election system, you know, they run as Republicans or Democrats. I think the combination of the down ballot effect and the fact of abortion and gun rights being those primary issues are probably going to make it a bit of an uphill battle for Republicans. But luckily for them, uh, the second district and the third district are more kind of suburban, white-collar districts and a little bit of a combination of some rural districts outside of the immediate influence of Cook County. So there's certainly a chance for a little bit of pickup there. Uh, now, briefly, could you talk about how exactly those for, for our listeners who aren't from Illinois, how those Supreme Court elections work here in Michigan, of course, we have Supreme Court justices on the ballot, but they run nonpartisan, which you alluded that your your justices actually do run partisan, and it's a statewide uh, thing. It's based on you know, a certain number of years they run for terms. Uh, how, how are these candidates running? Is it by a geographic district, or, or what's, what's at play there? Yeah, so Illinois is divided into... A number of Supreme Court districts, uh, each of them having one judge with the exception of the first district, which encompasses a majority of Cook County, which has three judges for it. So the two races we'll have are in the second and third. They run as either Democrats or Republicans, and the voters within those districts will vote for their particular judge. And so that's kind of been something that's come up. I've been reading about a number of voters who thought that they were going to be voting on these Supreme Court judges in the other districts, only to learn that they ultimately weren't. Very unfortunate. Uh, Tully Mitchell, a uh, uh, freshman from the state of Alabama. Alabama's had uh, some tumultuous Senate races. Uh, back in 2017, Jeff Sessions was appointed attorney general, and so there was a special election. And let's just say it didn't go over too well for the Republican candidate. Uh, we're not going to talk about <laughs> specifics uh, on necessarily why. Uh, so much, except uh, that sexual assault was certainly involved there uh, as uh, It came out at the very end of the election. So the final results, 49.9% for the Democrat, 48.3%. That was a massive swing from Mm -hmm. a previous Republican stronghold. Well, then Senator Doug Jones ran again in 2020, uh, and he lost pretty big. Uh, He only got 40%. Tommy Tuberville got 60%. Well, this time, 2022, Senate legend, he's been in there for – Almost terms, I believe. Twice as long as I've been (laughs) alive. Uh, It's Richard Shelby. He is retiring. So you had a a very interesting primary uh, to replace him earlier this year. Tell us a little bit about that and and where this has gone. 
Yeah, we had a pretty competitive Senate primary. Um, there were kind of three main contenders. We had Mike Durant of Black Hawk Down fame. He's an Army veteran and was actually a former prisoner of war in Somalia back in the 90s. Um, and he r- now runs an aerospace company in Huntsville. He ultimately ended up coming third in that primary. We also had Katie Britt, who serves now as president of the Alabama Business Council. And she was actually Senator Shelby's former chief of staff and had worked on his campaign. Shelby endorsed her pretty much out of the gate. Um, And lastly, we had Mo Brooks, who got a Trump endorsement um, pretty early on. And Trump actually withdrew his endorsement from Mo Brooks as his campaign started to lose traction over time. Um, Katie Britt ended up getting that Trump endorsement towards kind of the end of the race. And we had a Katie versus Mo runoff back in June, which Katie ultimately won. Um, I know we've had people on this same panel talking about their races at home are a little bit more competitive and Alabama tends to vote pretty consistently red, at least in statewide races. So I would say Katie Britt has basically got it. She'll actually be the first woman to win election to the Senate from Alabama. Um, And I think when it comes to any other races, honestly, I would predict that about every Republican candidate in a statewide race would win handily, including incumbent Governor Kay Ivey. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. The New York Times needle, uh, House and Senate forecast. The Senate's marked as a toss-up. Uh, that's no surprise. But the House, it's New York Times says 76% chance Republican. Um, so that's certainly something to keep our eyes on. Thomas, I, w- I want to ask you before we go to break, District 2, we talked about District 7, that's Abigail Spanberger. District 2's also got a somewhat interesting race. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there in the state of Virginia, District 2 of Virginia. Well, District 2 of Virginia has Republican Jen Kiggins and Democrat incumbent Elaine Luria running. They're both Navy veterans, and this is definitely a pure toss-up. What we're seeing right now, though, is with 38% of the vote in, Kiggins is up 57 to 42 on Elaine Luria. And the New York Times says that their best estimate is that the race is leaning toward Kickens. Most of the results we're seeing right now are coming from Virginia Beach, where Kickens is leading by 12 points, with 57% of that vote in. So this is still a close race. It's still neck and neck, but right now it's leaning towards the Republican. All right. Well, with that, it is almost 823 here on the East Coast. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM live election night coverage. The next thing we have coming up, former State Representative Eric Leuthoiser on some ballot propositions that Michigan voters saw earlier today. And later, Dr. Gary Wolfram on the issue of inflation, true causes in the midterms. You're not going to want to miss any of that. Radio Free Hillsdale Live Election Night coverage will be right back after this. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and I'm joined today by former State Representative Eric Leuthoiser. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks. We want to talk briefly tonight about some of the ballot initiatives that many have seen when voting today. Talk us through the process there. In addition to our elected officials, why are we voting on these laws or constitutional amendments? Right. Well, Michigan's kind of unique in that in our Constitution, we have a way for citizens to enact legislation that they feel the legislature itself was unable to get done. So over our history, since we were under our Constitution for several decades, we've had things over a number of issues. But the sense of it is really the citizens should be able to act when the legislature refuses to act. We have two ways of doing that. One, the legislature can put a ballot proposal on the ballot 
simply by passing with a simple majority the language to put on the ballot and saying, this is complicated, we want people to be able to vote on this themselves, almost like a referendum. Uh, we've done that over the years with sales tax and some other things. And this year, we have a ballot proposal to do that, which would change term limits in Michigan from the shortest in the country to kind of a hybrid where you could serve a longer number of years in the legislature, but a combined total of 14 in the House and or Senate, but no more than 12. Currently, the typical state rep serves six years like I did, or some go on and serve another four to eight years in the Senate. So some people could serve as much as 14. A majority of people are six and out like I am. Some serve longer. Coupled with that is a new disclosure piece which would require people running for office to list their assets and liabilities, compensation, and so forth. And for that reason, I'm a little bit suspicious. I think the term limits should be lengthened, but I'm a little suspicious that you're going to uh, maybe scare off some qualified people who don't want to have everybody up in their business for a job that is certainly above the medium pay in the district, but it's not like being president. So we'll see how that goes. The other way the proposals can get on the ballot is by having petitions circulated, And when this was envisioned, I'm sure they didn't expect to have paid circulators in college towns or areas of high population collecting these signatures. It's supposed to be rather time-consuming, kind of a high bar. It's got to be kind of a low bar. And now we have out-of-state money paying for these proposals to be put on our ballot. And the thing that's critical uh, for your listeners to know is that once one of these gets into the Constitution, it takes a three-quarter majority of the legislature to get them out. So think about you're making something in the, you know, you're making cookies and all of a sudden something really bad drops into the batter, the cooking batter, easy to fall into the batter, hard to get it back out of the batter. That's why these proposals two and three in particular, I think, are very problematic. A proposal three is the most contentious of the ballot propositions tonight, abortion rights on the ballot, lots of advertisements and things. There's also a lot of confusion there, especially over what exactly it means, not only by voters, but then they're wondering how will the courts and the state Supreme Court interpret it? What do you think about proposal three and particularly what's your interpretation of exactly what it would do? Well, what it would accomplish is it would allow pro-abortion forces to make Michigan the most abortion-friendly state in the country without having gone through the normal legislative process and by running what I would consider to be a very misleading and disingenuous campaign for it. If you want to know about something, look at how it's being advertised, and in this world, be as cynical as possible. You'll see advertisements for Proposition 3 talking about, here's this nice nurse that's going to lose her job just because of you know Proposition 3 failing in the big bad Supreme Court. On the contrary, there's never been any pro-life legislation that I'm aware of that has had a medical professional punished and go to jail for saving the life of a patient. So it's patently false. What I see is this is a contentious issue. I'm very much pro-life, but I understand it's a contentious issue. It's one of the reasons that in Michigan, since Roe v. Wade, we've had dozens of pro-life laws passed through the legislative process. What were considered to be reasonable restrictions, they were passed under Roe versus Wade, so they, they passed that test. And what this process would do is it would wipe away all those pro-life restrictions simply through the citizens' referendum, if you would, without any debate, without any full understanding, without most people knowing anything about what the proposal does. Now, in the case of Proposition 3, I think the people against Proposition 3 have done a good job of educating people. There's been organized opposition because it is such a terrifically important issue. Been mobilization of the religious groups, the Catholic Church, 
all the right to life, you know, affiliates and so forth. So I think they've done a good job explaining why this would be a radical, radical expansion of abortion rights. It goes way beyond restoring Roe versus Wade, which is the false claim. It goes way beyond anything we've seen really in any day. It would put us on the spectrum from most restrictive on abortion to most lenient on abortion. It would put us in the company of North Korea and uh, communist China. It would put us nowhere near the median of developed countries. It would put us nowhere near where most of Europe is. And I don't think the people of Michigan intend for the state of Michigan to be known worldwide as the most lenient place and the most pro-abortion place in the world. I just don't think they have any idea, and I think the people that pushed Proposal 3 know that that would never fly if it had an honest debate. So they're trying to do it through this disingenuous ad campaign showing people you know, purported to be doctors saying they're afraid of going to jail. Now, if Proposal 3 passes, since there is this debate, if some people who voted today thinking it's just codifying Roe and then find out as the courts interpret the proposal, actually the legislature can't limit abortion up till birth. Actually, it takes away the ability to give parents a say or for the attorney general uh, to even enforce parental notification laws. If something like that were to happen, as the opponents of the proposal suggest, so what? what is the recourse? I mean, are you stuck with that or just another ballot proposal for next time? Or would you have to meet that uh, three-fourths threshold that you mentioned in the legislature? Well, that's a great question. I, I think there would be buyer's remorse. And the, the three things you just mentioned are, are likely. First of all, endless litigation, right? Uh, and number two would be the legislature could take it up and try to pass a, a repeal of this and replace it with something else. But that would require three-quarters of the legislature. And I can tell you, having served there, that in today's Democratic Party, there's really no room for anybody who strays off from the 100% pro-choice, pro-abortion position. Governor Whitmer has famously tweeted, I think now she's up to 20 or 30 times that she's going to fight like hell to get Prop 3 passed. So, you know, so that is now sort of the standard canon law in the Democratic Party. And in a 50-50 state, it's going to be tough to find half of the Democrats to break from that that would vote to legislatively change it which takes us back to another ballot proposal in the future, perhaps something that the majority of people would say, yeah, this thing went way too far. Let's go back to something that's more in line with a normal country, a normal state, a country that respects life and understands that this is not 1970s. We have ultrasounds. We know that it's not a blob of tissue. We know that it's a baby. Let's have a real conversation about this and have a ballot proposal that we can get behind. You know, I hope it doesn't come to that, but if it does, I think the ballot proposal is the most likely solution to it. Now, as you're mentioning the legislature, as we wrap up, I, I want to ask about that. The University of Virginia's Center for Politics ranks both houses of the legislature as a toss-up. Fox ran a piece last week suggesting that the legislature might flip. What are your predictions? What exactly do you think will happen with the state legislature? I feel better about the House staying Republican than I do about the Senate. You know, it's a little, it's hard to understand how the Senate's going to break because of all the redistricting and the dramatic changes in the lines. We've got longstanding districts and the the whole suburban issue up for grabs in the Senate, how they're combining the population areas. But in the House, you know, we are the House that is closest to the people. Each representative represents about 90,000 people, and uh, the people know us. We know them. People are pretty fired up about what has been the mismanagement from the top down, either by Governor Whitmer or by President Biden. And uh, they're getting engaged at the local level. You talk about this could be kind of a school board revolution across the country where people are saying during COVID that there was such malfeasance. We've got to take this under our advisement. 
And I think if you put this as a referendum on the national policies, which were adopted by Governor Whitmer through the state, they're going to say, we can't afford to have another two years of Democratic control crammed down authoritarian-type policies. And they're going to, I think, use the House as sort of a bulwark to stop that. I would like to think the Senate would go the same way, but I'm very optimistic about the House. Again, people know us, and they know that we're going to uh, be a check on the power of the governor. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again for joining us. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM live election night coverage. We'll be right back. Nevada is a purple state and has been considered one of the battleground states the past several election cycles. Once again, it is in the public eye as Republicans might flip its Senate seat, gaining control of the Senate. The race is between incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Mazzo and Republican and former State Attorney General Adam Laxalt. Last time she was on the ballot in 2016, Senator Cortez Mazzo won by three points. Laxalt was last on the ballot in 2018 running for governor and lost by four points. However, unlike 2018, this year is a fairly unfavorable environment for Democrats. Real clear politics average has Laxalt ahead by one point, and every major polling outlet rates this race as a toss-up. We'll see what happens. listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. I'm your host, Josh Barker, and joining me is Gary Wolfront. He's the William Simon Professor of Economics and Public Policy here at Hillsdale College. He received his PhD in economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and has authored two books, including a capitalist manifesto, and he's the author of 60 journal articles or reports. Dr. Wolfram, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Poll after poll has shown over the last year or so that inflation is one of voters' top concerns. It's huge this midterm in driving particularly Republican turnout, as Republicans have blamed Democrats in Congress and the president for the high levels of inflation. Republicans are poised to take the House, and it's possible they take the Senate, If they come into power, what can they do to have a tangible impact on reducing inflation? Or do you think maybe Congress isn't actually the party responsible for the inflation to begin with? Well, there's a couple of things here. What Milton Friedman said is that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. So if the money supply is growing faster than output, then what you've got is inflation. Well, what happened was if you, you know, were taking your principles of macro course back in 2007, you'd say, well, gee, if the federal government runs a deficit, what happens? Interest rates will start to go up because the demand for loanable funds has gone up. Well, then what do you do? If you want to keep interest rates from rising, you're the Federal Reserve, you go out and you, you buy the bonds. But when you buy the bonds, it increases the reserves of the banks because that's how the Fed buys a bond from a bank. It increases their reserves at the Federal Reserve. Well, that means that the banks can loan out more, so they create checking accounts, which is money. And so the money supply goes up. In August of 2008, the banks were holding $2 billion in what's called excess reserves, the reserves beyond what they needed. That got up to over $4 trillion dollars. 
because what happened in 2008 is the Federal Reserve started paying interest on the reserves of banks. So what happened was all this reserves got held in the banks and weren't drifting out into the money supply. Well, then what we get from July of 2021 to July of 2022, you get this massive increase in, in not massive, but you get a 26% increase in the money supply. In fact, it goes up again by another 10%. So you get up until July of 2022, you get this big increase in the money supply. Well, what's going to happen? There's going to be inflation. Now, when is the inflation going to happen? As Friedman said, it's long and variable, you know, when that's going to show up in the economy. Well, what's happened since um, July of 2022, money supply hasn't grown at all. And so what's going to happen? We're going to get a reduction in inflation. And I wrote a piece in the Washington Examiner saying that the Federal Reserve shouldn't be out there raising interest rates, right? It's a monetary phenomenon. Um, and so well, I think what's going to happen is, is that inflation is going to go down. It's not going to go down to like today, although it has been going down because if you look at year over year increase, it takes a long time for it to actually go down because you've got all this prior months of inflation. Right. So if you look at what it do month to month, inflation has been going down on a month to month basis. So we're seeing some of that happening. And I'm afraid what's going to happen is the Fed is going to say, oh, inflation went down. Oh, that was because we were raising right. the interest rates. <laughs> when the reason the inflation is going to go down is because you've got a, a decrease in the, actually a flattening out of the supply of money. So that's, that's the problem there. So let's go back through this again for our listeners. Banks are required to hold a certain amount of money. It's the reserve requirement. In 2008, they held only $2 billion, billion with a B, with a B. in excess of that requirement. That's excess reserves. But the Federal Reserve started paying banks interest on those reserves so that by 2021, banks are holding $4 trillion with a T dollars. So while the government deficits increase, the money supply the average American has access to isn't increasing because the banks aren't loaning this money out. Because the Fed is paying them interest to hold it. And then what happens is amount that the Fed's paying interest on the reserves is less than they can make starting to loan it out. So when they start to loan it out, then the money supply starts to grow. Um, And so, you know, it's really the increase in the money supply that's coming about from this huge buildup of reserves. And why is that happening? Because we're running trillion dollar deficits. And if we weren't running trillion-dollar deficits, then we wouldn't have this Fed buying up all these bonds, resulting in an increase in the money supply eventually. And so if the Republicans get control of the the House and the Senate tonight, then what I would expect is that we will stop running $2 trillion deficits. In fact, Biden has been talking about how the um, the deficit has been reduced by, you know, more than ever. Well, it went from $4 trillion to $2 trillion, and most of that was coming from the COVID relief money. CARES not, Act yeah, and the, yeah, ARPA. Yeah, so I'm hopeful that what will happen is that the Republicans will end up controlling the House and the Senate and will be able to make some advancement. Now, the, the debt limit is probably going to be reached sometime in the early part of 2023, um, so that could be used as a tool the first trillion dollar budget didn't happen till 1987. Now we're running <laughs> trillion dollar deficits. deficits like it's nothing. All of this talk about inflation is very important. And thank you for helping to break it all down, Dr. Wolfram. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. 
America is likely to see many firsts tonight as races from around the country are called with both parties working hard to increase the diversity of their caucuses. Here are five notable examples. A major national milestone is about to be crossed. 106 years since Montana sent the first woman to Congress, Vermont will likely become the last state to do so, with Democrat Becca Balint leading in a race for Vermont's singular U.S. House seat, which is rated safe for her by election forecasters. New York's Long Island-based 3rd Congressional District, rated lean Democrat by most forecast, is the first race in American history where both major party candidates are openly LGBTQ. If Republican celebrity TV physician Dr. Mehmet Oz prevails in the hard-fought Pennsylvania Senate election tonight, he will become the first Muslim elected to the Senate and the first ever Muslim Republican elected to Congress. Caroline Leavitt, a Republican in New Hampshire's 1st District, has a chance to become the youngest female ever elected to Congress. She is 25, the minimum age to serve. This race is reigned Lean D. If Marcy Kaptur, a 40-year Democratic incumbent from Ohio's Toledo-based 9th District, wins re-election, she will become the longest-serving female member of Congress ever, surpassing Barbara Mikulski of Maryland. This race is rated Lean Democrat. Live from the Serial Center at Hills College, this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. Parker, and you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. It is 8.41 Eastern Time. Polls closing in 14 states across the country from New York to Texas in battleground races of Arizona and Wisconsin. That's in exactly 20 minutes at 9 p.m. Coming up next hour, we have guests lined up. Uh, first, Associate Professor of Politics, Joseph Postel. Then, James David Dixon, Managing Editor of the Michigan Capital Confidential. And Associate Professor of Economics, Charles Steele. It's all happening starting at 9 uh, we've got some results in from the state of Michigan. Very early, about 5% is in statewide. Uh, we'll be talking about that shortly. Uh, in Texas, uh, there was an early lead by Beta O'Rourke. Uh, Greg Abbott is uh, still ahead right now, 25% in by three points. That's the Texas gubernatorial race. In the state of Georgia, 41% in. Warnock leads Walker. to 47%. Much more to come from all of those states. And we're joined again by our student panel. Um, For those in person, to the left is Avery Knoll, co-president of Hillsdale College Democrats. Uh, Then we have on the far right, Faith Royce, president of Hillsdale College Republicans. In the middle, Joseph Sturdy, Jr. and George Washington Fellow here at the college. Uh, Thank you all for joining us this segment. Um, We want to talk about the state of Michigan. Um, I'm not a Michigan resident, but I've still gotten a little bit of uh, some of the advertisements. Even today, we were uh, on YouTube and Prop 3 ads came up. Uh, I've definitely seen more Prop 3 ads than I have for Whitmer or Tudor Dixon. Uh, Arguably, I'd say the coverage seems to think that Prop 3 is more important than the gubernatorial race. Uh, At a minimum, it's certainly driving turnout. Um, but uh, it's also proposal three of three, um, probably one on term limits, two on election law, and of course three on abortion. Um, I want to ask all of you, starting with the governor's race, uh, what do you anticipate with that tonight? It's definitely the headline race. Normally it would be the first thing that everyone's talking about because that's actually people being elected. Um, but maybe the propositions right now are getting more talk. Uh, starting with you, Avery, what, what do you expect to see tonight with the governor's race? 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see Whitmer and Dixon as opposed to the Proposal 3 situation because Whitmer ran primarily on reproductive rights. Uh, Her action ensuing to prevent the 1931 law from being enacted following the passage of Dobbs was the primary reason that abortion rights still exist in Michigan, um, and that's what she continued to run on. Uh, She has characterized her opponent as extreme on abortion rights, and she is also running on her record, which I find interesting as well. Dixon is running on family values and education, um, and so it's interesting to see how Whitmer's performance does when you counter it with the Proposal 3 results that we're seeing as well. Faith, uh, you're not exactly Governor Whitmer's biggest fan. Um, Tell us about what you're expecting to see tonight and and what the Republicans, uh, do you think Tudor Dixon is going to prevail or how how are you looking and approaching this race? Well, uh, yeah, definitely not Whitmer's biggest fan, but I think that Michigan is fed up with her failed policies. Um, During COVID, she shut our state down. We were one of the most extreme states. She put COVID patients in nursing homes, um, prevented some medical treatment to help COVID patients that would have saved lives um, and just uh, damaged our state for many years to come. And so I think I think Michigan's ready for change. Um, the, she's been polling very close to Tudor Dixon, who recently pulled up a couple points and I think is, was slightly ahead at the beginning of the day. And um, I'm hopeful. I, I think Dixon can pull off the win. I think that Whitmer and the Democrats are trying to scare people by calling Dixon extreme on abortion, but I think protecting all life is not extreme. It's what we need. It's a human right, and um, so I'm hopeful that Michigan is ready for change and for someone who values family and uh, will protect Michiganders from the unborn to the elderly. Uh, Joseph, we certainly had a very interesting primary for the Republicans when it comes to choosing who would replace uh, Governor Whitmer were the Republican elected uh, what did you make of all of that, and, and what do you think now that Tudor Dixon was the nominee, what, what do you anticipate will happen with that? Yeah, for sure. So I think to start, Gretchen Whitmer and Tudor Dixon are both in for a very, very long night. Um, this is one of the closest races in the nation as far as governors go, and so I think that this is going to be contested right down to the wire. Um, As far as the primary goes, I think Dixon is a very interesting candidate. Michigan, as with some other states, had issues of disqualification of candidates due to fraudulent ballots. And among those disqualified... Fraudulent fraudulent signatures for canvassing. Yes, fraudulent signatures for canvassing. Um, They outsourced those signatures to private companies. Um, And as such, I believe three candidates were disqualified. The frontrunner presumed at that point was James Craig of Detroit, and he was one of them disqualified. So following that, Dixon had a tough decision to make um, as to which lane she was going to take in the primaries, and she moved further to the right and tried to secure the Trump endorsement, which she did get. Now, with that, there's always the question of, is she running too far to the right in a state that is relatively purple? And so I think that's what we're going to see tonight. I mean, obviously on everyone's mind is abortion rights and Proposal 3, which Tudor Dixon has been lambasted for by the left. But similarly, she's held firm um, on a very strict pro-life stance. But nonetheless, Gretchen Whitmer is not highly popular in and of herself. Uh, As Faith mentioned, 
We have COVID policies looming over her head and in general failing infrastructure, which Gretchen Whitmer sought to protect as she was elected. She argued that she was going to fix our roads, and yet little has been done on that front, and we've seen the collapse of Michigan dams. As such, I think there's going to be a really close and long race tonight. All right, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. 6% of the vote is in statewide in Michigan, so that's not very much, but for for what it's worth, Gretchen Whitmer at 56%, Tudor Dixon at 42%. Um, I, it's certainly going to be a long night as right now we've got a fair amount of Detroit, uh, a, a fair amount of what is reporting is from Detroit. I want, to, I want to turn our attention, though, to some of these ballot propositions. And everyone's waited with bated breath to talk about Prop 3, so we'll, we'll save that for the last because it's three of three. Uh, prop 1. <laughs> prop 1 is about term limits, and that's something that uh, is very... Uh, interesting in, in the state of Michigan, we have a history of being some of the strictest term limits nationwide for state legislators. Um, certainly, if elected tonight, Governor Whitmer, this would be her last term because governor can only serve two terms, total of eight years. When the state house currently had six years, eight years in the state Senate, um, Prop 1, if passed, would shift that to a mere total of 12 with any combination in either house. Um, polling suggests that Prop 1 is doing pretty well. It, Last I looked, it was doing the best of the three. Um, do you think that Prop 1 will help or hinder the state? Avery, what's your take? Yeah, I think whenever you're discussing term limits, you're always thinking about how to protect elections and you're discussing how to protect democracy. You don't want to have people sitting in office making money from their positions for decades on end like we see so often in Congress. And so I think Michigan's positions already are pretty good. But it's always better to get a step in the right direction. And my take on that would be to expand term limits and restrict the amount of time that people are allowed to spend in the legislature. All right, Faith, college Republicans, what's what's your take on the Republican side of Prop 1? I mean, certainly on the face, it's not necessarily a partisan proposal. Do you agree with Avery's take or perhaps a slightly different opinion? Well, I'm always for uh, less government, but um, I, on the face, it seems like a good proposal. Now, I have my concerns with it personally. Um, it would allow you to serve for 12 years in one seat. So you could sit in the House for 12. You could sit in the Senate for 12, which I find slightly concerning. Um, so, that's, so that's like six terms in a row. But um, it also has a – it would amend Section 10 of an article that we currently have that prohibits a state officer or member of legislator from having an interest in a contract with the state or um, that has a substantial conflict of interest. It's amending that, which is also concerning for me. I just think it might open the door for some uh, things down the road that would actually hurt Michiganders and um, give government more control. But on its face, it seems okay. Um, so I just, I'm wary of that. Yeah, so, so briefly for our listeners, that uh, conflict of interest portion, it increases the disclosure requirements. So the thought is if it's disclosed, uh, it could be a, some sort of you know, conflict could be allowed. Certainly it's debatable. Um, moving on to Prop 2 very quickly, that has to do with various election laws. The state legislature passed a series of election bills back in 2021. Governor Whitmer vetoed them, uh, as we've reported here on Radio Free Hillsdale for a while. Um, but she actually signed a few that got passed in October, just last month. Um, and so there's been a little bit of compromise in the legislature. Prop 2 
would expand a wide variety of things with elections rather than enumerating all of them. Uh, I want to get just a general takeaway. Joseph, what's your uh, big, big high-level takeaway from Prop 2? What's the key issues in that, uh, and where do you see uh, it helping or hurting the state? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Prop Prop 2 has wide voter changes. Um, as far as our voting system in Michigan, um, among them, there are some that argue that Prop 2 is encoding our voter ID laws, which Michigan's had for a number of years, into our state constitution. However, it also allows voting without an ID if you sign a sworn affidavit. And so, in the end, I think that's one of the parts of this that is not the most significant, um, because I see the impact being negligible. But more so, my problem with Proposal 2 is that it's expanding election day into election season, generally speaking. Um, this is authorizing a week of early voting. It's authorizing absentee voting um, at drop boxes and extending the vote count for absentee late ballots. And I think ultimately this is going to lessen the transparency in Michigan's elections. Uh, after 2020, most Americans have concerns about election integrity, and this is not the type of proposal that is going to make our elections more transparent, whether or not the results are true or false. A Avery, what's your take on Prop 2? Yeah, I, just to kind of push back a little bit on what I think Joseph said, it's not necessarily that it's going to be an expansion of voting season because voting season already exists, absentee voting already exists. In addition, I don't think that absentee voting is going to lead to late voting. It's just postmarked for election day or sooner. And so I think that's certainly something that needs to be taken into account. My take on it is that Proposal 2 is an expansion of voting rights. And for those in marginalized communities that may be less likely to vote because of lesser access to polling locations or ability for transportation or other such type things. I think it's really important that we expand voting rights, especially in states like Michigan, which do run so purple, and you do need to make sure that you're ensuring a representative democracy, especially when we have states such as Wisconsin, which do run purple in statewide elections, but because of the state legislature, they run extremely Republican. All right, Prop 3, we're approaching the break, but I want to get just a very short summary from each of you. What do you see Prop 3 as accomplishing? There's been some debate. Will it codify Roe, or by that name mean Casey, as far as with viability, um, or would it be more expansive than that? Um, very, very briefly, uh, going down the line, Faith, what, what would Prop 3 do, and what, what do you see? Uh, Prop 3 would make us one of the most radical abortion states in the entire country um, with the likes of California. And it also would allow a minor to obtain um, a surgery for a sex change or sterilization or an abortion without parental knowledge or consent. It even changes the age of consent laws. It kind of eliminates them, which is concerning when that's considering uh, statutory rape and um, pedophilia. That's extremely dangerous for children and just Michiganders in general. So overall, it would expand abortion to such extremes nine months, even past. So I think it's just a very concerning thing for our state. Joseph, what is your take on Prop 3? Yeah, I tend to agree with Faith. I think it's more toward the Casey standard as far as abortion goes. However, it certainly expands issues of transgender surgery and um, other matters of parental consent 
Interestingly enough, though, it's outperforming polls, which predicted that it would succeed, and it's even outperforming Gretchen Whitmer. This is showing that abortion really is the number one issue on the ballot tonight in Michigan. Absolutely. And now, of course, these reference to transgender is the right to bodily autonomy in Prop 3. Avery, tell us uh, right before we go to break, what is your take on Prop 3? What exactly would it do? Yeah, my take on Prop 3 is that it's a codification of Casey. It's a determinate by fetal viability, which is determined by doctors, not by state legislature members, which I think is extremely important. We don't need the state legislature dictating these important rights that are determined by women and doctors. I don't think that the characterization that this does anything to parental consent laws is accurate. Legal scholars at the University of Michigan Law School have argued that the state constitution already protects parental consent under different guidelines in the state constitution, and minor laws are always different than laws that go to the rest of the state. And so I don't think it's a fair characterization to say that this is going to enshrine pedophilia into the Michigan state constitution. All right, well, we'll have all these people back to talk about Prop 3 and abortion more here in the state of Michigan. It's 5 till 9. The next hour is jam-packed with some amazing guests. Right after the break, Associate Professor of Politics Dr. Joseph Postel will be joining me along with Luke Spangler. Luke Spangler and Josh Hypes polls closing in another 14 states at the top of the hour. I'm Josh Barker, and you're listening to Live Election Night coverage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Arizona has been a battleground state for the past several elections. Tonight, Arizonans have on the ballot Democrat Senator Mark Kelly and Republican Blake Masters. The latest rankings of the state put it as a toss-up or lean Democrat. Real Clear Politics average has Kelly up 1.5 points. In 2020, Mark Kelly won his seat by two points against incumbent Martha McSally, outperforming President Biden, who won the state by a mere 0.2%. Kelly had been leading Masters by four to five points in the Real Clear average as recently as early October, but in the most recent weeks, Masters has been closing the gap. After graduating from Stanford Law School, Masters began working for venture capitalist and businessman Peter Thiel, a co-founder of PayPal and the first outside investor in Facebook. Masters co-authored with Thiel the book Zero to One, and despite being the young age of 36, has risen to be Thiel's chief operating officer. Mark Kelly is also not without accomplishments. The former naval airman has spent 54 days in space as a NASA astronaut, alongside his twin brother, Scott Kelly. Mark's wife is former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Kelly ran as a moderate in 2020. However, unlike his counterpart, Kristen Sinema, he has supported Democrat proposals such as $15 an hour minimum wage and the elimination of the filibuster in the vote earlier this year. The race in Arizona could decide the fate of the U.S. Senate. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and this is live election night coverage. You're listening to WRFH LP Hillsdale. Polls are just now closing in 14 states across the nation, including in some of the most hotly contested races in the country. Arizona and Wisconsin have the control of the Senate hanging in the balance, potentially. This segment, I am joined again by Luke Spangler, 
for those in person. On the far right, Junior studying economics and French. We're also joined by Josh Hypes, political correspondent for the Collegian. He's a Winston Churchill fellow. But our highlight guest is Dr. Joseph Postel. He's an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College, received his PhD from the University of Dallas, author of Bureaucracy in America, The Administrative State's Challenge to Constitutional Government, and the editor or co-editor of about half a dozen other books. Dr. Postel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you tonight. So it's still early out there uh, in the evening. It is 9 p.m. here on the East Coast. Uh, 2016 to 2018, 2020 seems like just a bunch of craziness. Florida and North Carolina now more solidly red. Pennsylvania, Arizona, even Georgia being considered toss-up states. Uh, I don't think anyone would have really imagined, especially Georgia uh, back in 2016. Uh, The fact that there's a radical change taking place in electoral politics is pretty clear. what exactly that change entails is altogether different. Talk to us about making sense of these general trends and how how they're affecting us. Are we living through a new party alignment, as some people are suggesting, or is this just a shift of support among certain demographic groups? Yeah, I think it's a lot more of the latter. So um, I like to show my students when we look at realignments in American history how or what a real realignment looks like. So um, I showed them the electoral maps for the president, uh, presidential elections of 1964, where Lyndon Johnson beat uh, Barry Goldwater. Goldwater carries six states. Lyndon Baines Johnson wins 44. And then in 1972, Richard Nixon wins 49 out of 50 states. So you look at a map, eight years, right, you see blue completely switched to red. And so that's what realignments look like historically in American politics. This is a little bit more of like a granular shift among certain demographic groups, like you said. So um, clearly this matters, right? This puts some states in play for a party that hasn't been able to compete. You know, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, maybe Pennsylvania for for Republicans, Georgia, Arizona, right, for Democrats. But I think this is more of sort of subtle shifts within the electorate rather than these, these major realignments that we have seen earlier in American history. Dr. Postel, what are some of the uh, metrics that you've been looking at over the course of tonight uh, to see which party will take control of one of the houses of Congress? Yeah, so you know, the problem with watching results in this cycle, and you've, you've seen it in the last couple of cycles, it's going to be interesting to see if this is a trend that holds or not, is that you can't really predict much in the early hours or even maybe the later hours of election night. So. Um, we don't know where the votes are coming from at this point. We don't know whether mail-in votes are being counted early, whether they're being counted late. So all of this is really sort of taking with a grain of salt. But I'm looking at three races in Virginia. I think these have come up actually already on the broadcast. Um, Virginia 2, Virginia 7, Virginia 10. And basically, I think if Virginia 2 flips, that's kind of a, taken as a given, right, uh, that a regular night for the Republicans would be picking up that seat. Virginia 7 would be a good night for Republicans if they pick up that seat. And then Virginia 10, which has actually, I think, already been called by some outlets for the Democrats, would be one of those wave seats. So um, we don't know yet what all of that means. Again, the vote counts. We don't know where the votes are coming from. So I'm watching some of these these, uh, House races. I think those are the real indicators of of what kind of a night it's going to be. The Senate is trickier, right? Uh, a lot of these, these seats are very hotly contested, and so whether you know, Pennsylvania goes one way or the other, that's one seat. But House races can sort of give you a picture of what's going on more broadly in the country. Uh, Dr. Postel, there's a lot of new proposals uh, coming up on uh, statewide ballots this year and more as of late um, on how to make elections better. Um, for example, we have a ranked, uh, ranked choice ballot initiative in Nevada this year. 
Um, what do you think would improve the electoral system in the United States, and what do you think of these new ideas like ranked choice voting? Uh, you might be setting me up here for uh, uh, sort of me pulling, pouring cold water on all of these new uh, sort of innovative ways of running elections. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the two-party system. I think the two-party system works uh, for the best interest of the American people as a whole. The two parties have been the best mechanisms for putting together coalitions and keeping them together and for making government responsive to the people. Um, ranked choice voting, top two primaries, all these kinds of things that, you know, are being tested these days. I think um, the problem with those, uh, first of all, they're confusing to voters. I think voters don't really understand what's going on. But at a deeper level, I think they encourage exactly the kinds of candidates we don't want. So um, this, this really goes all the way back to primary elections as a whole, right? Uh, you know, voters in primaries don't vote for the candidates that are the most sort of reasonable, responsible. They don't tend to vote for the candidates with the best substantive positions. They tend to vote for candidates who are adept at using the media to their advantage. They tend to vote for candidates who look uh, sort of appealing, the kind of candidate you want to have a beer with. And really those aren't the kinds of qualities that a, a Republican form of government should be, you know, sort of trying to get out of its elected officials. And so um, ranked choice voting, you know, I think any of these kinds of mechanisms suffer from that problem, which is, you know, voters are being asked to make decisions that, that are going to produce the wrong kinds of uh, candidates or produce the wrong kinds of incentives. So. Um, I guess the other thing I would say about ranked choice voting, that, that's all the rage these days, is uh, either one of two things seems to happen in ranked choice voting systems. Either you get basically the same candidate you would have gotten otherwise from a primary. So, you know, isn't a primary system a sort of ranked choice voting system, right? Um, Iowa knocks out a few of the worst candidates, then New Hampshire knocks out some candidates, then South Carolina, and you're left with, like, somebody that maybe everybody had third on the list, like Joe Biden. Um, or in Alaska, you get these very weird uh, systems where, you know, the Republicans split all of their votes up and the Democrats consolidate their votes. And so they end up winning because, you know, they've strategically positioned themselves to take advantage of the system. So um, you might see with ranked choice voting, basically, the parties would have to collude to consolidate their votes to avoid the outcome that you've seen in Alaska. So I'm supposed I'll, I'll sort of suspend judgment until I see some more of these experiments play out. But I'm very skeptical. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have some results coming in from across the country. In the state of Georgia, right now, 57% of the vote in. Raphael Warnock remains in the lead, 51.7%. Herschel Walker at 46%. We've certainly got a fair amount reporting from Atlanta uh, at the moment. So a lot of the rural counties, uh, we've got a few down in South Georgia that aren't reporting at all yet. So more to come with that. But of course, very interesting, Brian Kemp, the Republican candidate for governor ahead, 51 to Stacey Abrams, 48%. Um, in other states, we have in the state of New Hampshire, the governor's race has been called for the Republicans, currently only 15% of the vote in, but uh, the, the New York Times has called that race. Um, Certainly very interesting. In North Carolina, Democrat Sherry Beasley has a very thin lead over Ted Budd with 65% of the vote in. That's 49.1% to 49.0%. So again, when we say close, it's, it's very close. Um, so w with all of that, uh, we're, we're definitely seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting results with Senate and gubernatorial mismatch. OSHA. These are all administrative agencies, not Congress and the president uh, working together on these kinds of initiatives. So 
I think to a great extent, we have transferred a lot of the power and a lot of the decision making over to these agencies. So the question is, how do you get it back? And I think um, these races matter and these elections matter because they give us the potential to have a Congress that can get, that can become more active in reclaiming some of the power it has delegated away. Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, live election night coverage. I'm Josh Barker, and this is Dr. Joseph Bostell, as well as Josh Hypes, Luke Spangler. Uh, Michigan governor's race, we've got 9% of the vote in, so it's still very slowly but steadily coming. Gretchen Whitmer at 52.8%, Tudor Dixon down 45%. So uh, there's certainly a wide gap, but only 9% of the vote in. Interestingly, going through our ballot propositions, Proposition 3, which we just spoke briefly about, we'll talk more about in the next hour, uh, the right to reproductive freedom. Currently, again, 8% of the vote in, 58% yes, 42% no. Uh, That means that Prop 3 is definitely outperforming Governor Whitmer, um, which is is not necessarily surprising uh, based on the polling, but definitely interesting to note. Uh, Dr. Bristol, before you go, as far as the House goes, what, what are your uh, anticipations there? We've talked a little bit about uh, what you know, Republicans are expected to take the House. What will will that result in anything uh, substantive for us in the next two years, as far as policy goes? Do you think? I think you'll see the same fights that you saw that you saw during the Obama years over the debt limit and the potential government shutdowns that hit. Unless, unless the Congress raises the debt limit. And so that's going to put a lot of pressure on House leadership to figure out the right kind of deal to make with President Biden, one that satisfies the Freedom Caucus, the more conservative members of the Republican Party, without basically abandoning uh, sort of um, you know, the ability to work with and negotiate with President Biden. And that was a challenge that really frustrated Boehner. It's really frustrated Paul Ryan. McCarthy's going to face the same problems. And so we'll see how you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker. We've got James David Dixon from Michigan Capital Confidential coming up after the break. We'll see you all on the other side. The 1st District of Indiana, located along the state's Lake Michigan shore and Chicago suburbs, is home to one of this year's hardest-fought house races. Incumbent one-term Democrat Frank Mervin is facing a stiff challenge from an Air Force veteran, Republican Jennifer Ruth Green, who is seeking to be only the second African-American Republican woman ever elected to Congress. This district was one of the few to trend toward the Republicans in the 2020 presidential election, though Biden still won it by 8%. Republicans are optimistic, however, due in large part to the demographics of the district, which consists of a high percentage of white working-class voters. This is also a district where Republicans believe their message on inflation and the slugging economy will make a large impact. For these reasons, Indiana 1 is generally regarded as a good barometer of how well the Republicans are performing tonight. A win here would indicate a strong GOP night. Most forecasters rate this race as a toss-up. choose to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Our collective futures depends on your willingness to uphold your duties as a citizen, to vote. We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. 
Your vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful non-violent tool we have to create a more perfect union. November 8th, 2022, the day is finally here. With the Senate evenly split, Republicans and Democrats have spent the past two years warring over policy issues. Federal spending. We have the money in our accounts to do what is right. Money delivered by federal Democrats. I'd call it the Build Back Broke plan. I mean, it's $555 billion for Biden's job-killing energy agenda that will increase energy prices on every American household. Inflation. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price. I call it Biden inflation because they're printing trillions of dollars. It's causing everything to go up. This inflation is real. It's harming people. That's a tax. And it continues to increase. It's not decreasing. Foreign policy. Liberty, democracy, human dignity. These are the forces far more powerful than fear and oppression. They cannot be extinguished by tyrants like Putin and his armies. The Biden administration's reckless decision to retreat from Afghanistan was carried through to a damaging and deadly end. Four terrorists, once detained at Guantanamo Bay, now hold senior positions in the Taliban regime. Abortion. Abortion the Republican-controlled Supreme Court has achieved their dark, extreme goal of ripping away a woman's right to make their own reproductive health decisions. And you should understand her position. It's extremely radical. It's abortion up to the moment of birth. The culture. I mean, the fact that they want to sexualize our children and our children's childhoods for their own political agenda is incredibly disturbing. The states that are introducing the anti-critical race theory laws. There are two visions for America. Our democracy is at stake. So we have an opportunity to make 2022 the year that America fought back. The results come soon and it all starts now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Live from the Cyril Center at Hillsdale College, you're listening to Election Night 2022. And it is 9.17. Uh, results are certainly streaming in, but it's early for sure. Uh, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to say. We've got some updates from our war room, particularly in the state of Florida. Uh, Donald Trump out there uh, stoking some controversy. Trump has certainly had some con- conflict with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, he reportedly said, I think Rick Scott would be much better than McConnell. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, but as far as the governor's race in Florida goes, Trump won Florida by about three points in 2020. DeSantis leads by 19, 86% in. Uh, that's a significant uh, performance. Uh, Gabriel, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's an interesting situation where just two years later you have a massive swing and DeSantis is very much an interesting figure in that he really embraces a lot of policies that aren't polled and yet he'll go in and take these stances that don't appear to be popular and then he's obviously turning out to be something that has been much bigger than anyone expected, I think. I mean, Florida's traditionally been considered a swing state, but these don't look like swing state numbers. 
Yeah, and now, of course, right above that, the state of Georgia uh, is kind of a different story. A Republican stronghold, and then 2018 saw a little bit of a shift. 2020 uh, was a massive upset. Um, we had two Senate seats on the ballot, and one of them, you know, it was anticipated that uh, Purdue was likely to prevail in that, but then some of the 2020 post-election uh, controversy led to less uh, voter turnout in North Georgia, and so that meant we had less as far as uh, voters uh, voting for Republicans. Both Senate seats flipped. Uh, right now, Senator Warnock, one of the candidates who prevailed, 59% of the vote in in Georgia. Warnock is at 51.3%. That's a pretty comfortable lead in the state of Georgia, which is very interesting to see in contrast with Florida, how Georgia is doing. Uh, we have joining us by phone James David Dixon. He's the managing editor of the Michigan Capitol Confidential out of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, uh, formerly of the Detroit News. Mr. Dixon, thank you for joining us this evening. Hey, guys, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. Mr. Dixon, CapCon is unique in that it focuses not just on news, but on policy news. And uh, certainly at Radio Free Hillsdale, we talk about policy uh, being an academic institution. And we appreciate that point of view and would love to bring that conversation uh, to this election. The Center for Politics out of Virginia ranks both the State House and State Senate here in Michigan as a toss-up. We've already talked about some of the headline issues tonight, Prop 3, abortion, election laws. Um, but when you're watching the results here tonight, uh, Mr. Dixon, what, what do you see at stake as far as the policies that could potentially get enacted if the Democrats do take control of one or both houses of the state legislature? You know, that one is tough to see. But when you look at some of these initiatives, um, you know, props that are not evenly split at all. I mean, when you look at some of the polling on, say, the different bills regarding what curriculum should be taught in schools, that's not an even split. You're looking at something that is mainly going to be, I don't know, a 60-40 issue, if that, if not even greater, and that when you're forcing someone to take a position on this and defending something that is definitely not going to be engaging with what the majority of the voters, even Democrats, it's a pretty much an even split. Independents and Republicans are firmly against it. You're going to run up these margins that I think we're seeing here in Florida. Matty Grace, I know you talk in your podcast about some of these issues. What is your take on to the extent that these cultural issues are driving voter turnout, um, particularly you come from uh, Arkansas, and that's a predominantly conservative area. To, do you think that this is helping the turnout there, or do you think that's turning off some voters who perhaps are more libertarian-minded? I think cultural issues definitely have a big role to play in voter turnout. I know especially with the younger generation, you know, Generation Z coming up into the voting age, we're seeing a lot of things play out on social media. You see those cultural issues highly promoted on social media from whatever angle it is. And so I think people are really getting behind that, seeing those cultural issues and feeling the need to go out and vote as opposed to just an election where there aren't, they don't feel as obligated to do something about it. All right, Mr. Dixon, are you back on the line? I am back. Hey, sorry about uh, that. I had a little uh, technical difficulty. <laughs> no problem, no problem. So we want to ask you about uh, 
the state house elections and the policy implications there. Uh, so as we mentioned, the Center for Politics uh, out in University of Virginia says state house, state senate, potentially a toss up if either the house or the senate flip. What do you see as the policy implications there? Well, then Michigan becomes a one-party state, essentially. And so the good news is that you might not see a ton more lawmaking in Michigan because we already have quite a, a bit of it. Uh, in the not quite four years Whitmer's been governor, she signed 975 laws. It's tough to imagine how many more they would sign if it were all members of one party. So there's quite a lot of activity in Lansing already. It's tough to imagine there would be more. What I can see happening is rather than a legislature challenging the governor's office on making policy through its executive departments, they would just let that go on. And so by the time someone gets back in power and is able to challenge some of these things, now it's been embedded for several years. So I think you would see the administrative state grow. I don't think you'd necessarily see more lawmaking, but I do expect we would spend a lot more money. Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and this is James David Dixon of the Michigan Capitol Confidential on the line. Governor Whitmer, as you mentioned, has become notorious for her COVID policies across the state. She's trying to put some of that in the background, or at least not focus on it. Uh, and many voters, they think, you know, COVID's over. It's not going to happen again, hopefully. Uh but you've done some very important reporting in recent months that the Whitmer administration, while I see COVID might be coming to an end, they're not necessarily ready to give up power. Uh, last week, you authored a piece, uh, Landlord-Tenant Rule Affects Substantive Right of Landlords. The proposed rule would make permanent some of the governor's temporary COVID rules regarding evictions. Of course, the governor has also frequently vetoed any legislation from the state legislature that would amend emergency powers laws uh, or even emergency powers as they relate to the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, and you had an, another piece about her most recent veto in mid-October. So with all of this, what role do you see the governor's COVID policies as uh, playing both in the voters' decisions tonight and potentially the policy implications if she is indeed reelected, even if COVID doesn't resurge? Well, I think if Whitmer were to be reelected, it, it would in some ways be an affirmation of, of what she did. Uh, the reason why she might lose, though, is because normally, you know, the traditional role for the media is to play a watchdog role over someone like a governor. So if you have a governor who says something like, hey, all 10 million people should stay home for this small list we made in my, in my office, you'd expect some pushback, but that never came. You'd expect investigations into, well, wait a minute. Lockdowns were never part of the plan for a pandemic before. How did suddenly we come to this place? Normally, you would expect the media to do that. The media hasn't done that. And so that means for most people in Michigan, if you did have a problem with how lockdowns happen, shutdowns, gyms, restaurants, all kinds of things, schools. If you did have a problem with that, today has really been your first chance in two and a half years to speak up. Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker. And again, uh, James David Dixon on the line with us, my student panel, Maddie Grace Watson and Gabriel Powell. 
Gabriel uh, was an intern at the Mackinac Center, uh, where Mr. Dixon. Excellent intern. <laughs> Thank you, Gabriel. Yeah, so I was curious. I mean, we were just talking about, you were talking about the effect the media has had and not really questioning Governor Whitmer and her policies. Do you think that also might have an effect on some of these down-ballot statewide races, namely the Secretary of State race, the Attorney General race? Because both of them were involved to some extent in these COVID policies as well. I mean, Dana Nessel was running around the state enforcing these things to a very, very high degree. Do you think that might also be playing a role in how voters are turning out tonight? I think more so Nessel than Benson. I think of the three, Benson is probably the least controversial. Um, Benson's on the ballot today, but you haven't heard many people say, well, hey, she shouldn't, you know, she should not be involved in the vote counting process. Right? So so even in a, in a situation where there's a clear possible conflict of interest, no one thinks her integrity is that low. Nestle, though, you know, when you're the top law enforcement officer in a state and that state has the worst lockdowns in America. And then as we've reported at Capcom, you know, you find out someone's going to go on TV to speak against the administration and you tell state police to arrest that person. This isn't how the government should behave. The government should never the full weight of the state should never come down on any citizen. We should be sovereign. And so there's a, a, a perversion of how things should work and who works for who here. And so if you're frustrated, I think a lot of people say, this is my chance to speak up. I have a problem with the way things were handled, and now I get to do something about it. Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Mr. Dixon, before you go, I'd like to ask you about a piece from July. Uh, proposal 1, of course, is on the ballot tonight. Uh, Michigan's current term limits, 14 years total, up to six in the state house, eight in the state senate, would be changed if passed to a combination of 12 years, whatever you can get in the two houses. Um, but you, in, in July, put forward an interesting proposal to counter uh, both the proposal one suggestions as well as the current limitations, uh, writing, quote, the Lansing model has its flaws, specifically those lobbyists and the outsized influence that they can hold on people who spend much of their service uh, learning the job. But the flaws of Washington, D.C. model, lifetime service, so long as you keep getting elected, are just as clear. Uh, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners what your alternative vision, if you had your way, of course, it's not on the ballot tonight, but what, what would your alternative proposal be? My alternative would be you can serve as long as you want. You could serve over a 40-year time span. But after a certain amount of races, you would, you would not be eligible to run for anything. And so say you did three terms in the state house, then you would have to sit out a cycle and then you'd be eligible to run again. And so you, what, what, what I would want to do is take away a lot of that advantage of incumbency. And so if two people face each other, you know, by the time you're able to run for office again, there's going to be someone else who has that title of incumbent. And so it's going to take real political skill. It's going to take real charm. It's going to take real effort to win that seat back. And we want these things to be competitive. Uh, I think one of the best races we ever had in Michigan was about 20 years ago, John Dingle versus Lynn Rivers when they were redistricted and put into the same district. That's what politics should be. 
we had a mini version of that uh, this year with Haley Stevens against Andrew Levin, or Andy Levin, I believe. Um, that's what it should be. It should be competitive. Competitive primaries, competitive generals. Let's give people something to vote for. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, especially despite all the technical difficulties. Again, this is James David Dixon, the managing editor of Michigan Capital Confidential. MichiganCapitalConfidential.com is the website. Um, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM live election night coverage. It is 935. The night is still young. We'll be back very shortly with some more guests. Associate Professor and Detweiler Chair of Economics Charles Steele will join us after the break. And then at 10 p.m., Dr. Adam Carrington will be with us. You won't want to miss a thing. Maddie Grace will stay with us through the break. And Luke Spengler will return after these messages. Voters are not only choosing. Voters are not only choosing who will lead the nation and the states tonight, but they are also directly deciding several important policy questions with large ramifications. Five states are voting today on abortion rights. In another five states, voters will decide whether to legalize marijuana. Six states are voting whether to alter voting procedures, and many other states are voting on new term limits. Here in Michigan, all of these subjects, except marijuana, are on the ballot tonight. Some other interesting questions from around the country include, in Arizona, the voters are deciding whether to create an office of the lieutenant governor, which is one of only five states currently where there is no such office. Arkansas and Idaho are choosing whether to give the state legislature the power to reconvene without the governor's calling in case of emergency. This is in response to events during the COVID-19 pandemic, where the legislatures of these states did not have a chance to vote on the governor's lockdowns and other pandemic policies. In California, almost 75% of all money that has been spent campaigning on ballot measures this year has been spent on two California propositions that would legalize mobile sports betting in the state. Large online gambling platforms have donated heavily to the campaign, with spending between the two measures totaling over half a billion dollars. For reference, only about $25 million has been spent on the governor's race in California this year. One of the nastiest races fought in the country, two incumbent representatives are facing off after being drawn together during the once-a-decade redistricting in the South Texas 34th District. Republican Congresswoman Myra Flores is facing Democratic Congressman Vincente Gonzalez. Ms. Flores was originally elected in June in an upset during a special election after the incumbent Democratic representative resigned. Interestingly, Elon Musk, who lives in the district, has claimed that Ms. Flores was the first Republican he ever voted for. South Texas was one of the few areas nationwide where President Trump saw large gains compared to his 2016 performance, due in large part to the heavy Latino population in the area, which over the last few decades has trended increasingly Republican. The close nature of this race has drawn in large amounts of spending and inflamed tensions. Mr. Gonzalez has been under fire for attacking Ms. Flores because she is an immigrant who was born in Mexico. Virginia's 7th Congressional District is likely to be an interesting race, composed of the southern D.C. suburbs and surrounding rural areas, including the city of Fredericksburg. The seat is currently held by Democrat Abigail Spanberger, but it hasn't always been a Democrat stronghold. In fact, the seat was formerly held by Republican House Majority Leader Eric Cantor 
until he was beat by even more conservative David Brett, who held the seat with comfortable majorities in 2014 and 2016. However, the seat flipped blue for the first time in decades in the blue wave of 2018 and stayed with the Democrats in 2020. However, Virginia's election last November was a massive upset. Despite being a mostly blue state, Republican Glenn Youngkin won by two points over former Democrat Governor Terry McAuliffe. In that election, Governor Youngkin won the district by five points, 52 to 47 percent. Running against Spanberger is Republican Yeso Vega, who, if elected, would be the first Latina to hold this seat in Congress. Currently, Vega is a member of the Board of Supervisors of Prince William County, Virginia. Political rates this district as lean Democrat, but anything could happen. Oregon is the only state to have not elected a Republican governor at any time in the last 40 years. However, 2022 may be the perfect storm for the GOP in this state, as former state representative and Republican Christine Drazen has been narrowly leading polls against former State House Speaker and Democrat Tina Kotek. Incumbent Democratic Governor Kate Brown has been consistently polled as the most unpopular governor anywhere in the nation, despite this being a reliably Democratic state. Drazen has been aided in her quest to capture the governor's mansion by an independent candidate and former Democratic state senator, Betsy Johnson, who poll show is drawing Democratic voters disaffected by Governor Brown's tenure. Key issues have been the homeless crisis in Portland, inflation and the economy, and support for police. President Biden visited the state in October to boost Kotect. He had this to say about the 2022 midterms. This is, I think, the most important off-year election that we've had in since Roosevelt's time. I, I mean that sincerely, because so much is at stake. Most election forecasters rate the Oregon race as a toss-up. This is the 2022 midterm election live on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Josh Barker here from Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. It is 941 Eastern Time. That means we're just 19 minutes away from more polls closing. All night, every hour, polls close. But as fewer and fewer states as we go west, 10 p.m., we're looking at Nevada, the key state there, uh, some of the eastern counties in Oregon, which you just heard from uh, Luke Spangler about that uh, governor's race there, then Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Uh, I bring up Montana because even though it may not be a battleground state tonight, it's certainly important to one of our guests. Our guest this segment, Dr. Charles Steele, Associate Professor, Detweiler Chair in Economics, Chairman of Economics, Business, and Accounting at Hillsdale College. Um, so, of course, I can't not mention, due to the circumstances, he received his undergrad and master's degree out at Montana State. Uh, though he's got his master's back in 1990, certainly been back since then. Uh, Dr. Steele, funny enough, also has connections just about everywhere internationally that's important right now. A former economics professor in Ukraine, also spent some time teaching in China. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Steele. Great. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, and also for our listeners, uh, Luke Spangler, uh, our junior studying economics and French, is back with us, as well as Maddie Grace Watson, freshman and Fact of Life host. Uh, we've got some more uh, results as far as uh, across the nation. In Ohio, J.D. Vance leading in the Senate race there, 52 to 48%, 52% of the vote is in in the state of Ohio. 
Uh, New York Times has a forecast for their uh, House and Senate. It's a, a needle, and they give the percent chance of who will win. At the beginning of the night, uh, Republicans were destined to control the House, they said, 76% chance. Now we're looking at 73% chance. Interesting, it's still leaning Republican, but that's gone down. Senate remains a toss-up, at least according to the New York Times. Uh, In Pennsylvania, John Fetterman had an early lead, only 26% of the vote in right now still, uh, but his lead has been dropping. He's right now at 55 to 43%. Again, the night is still young. We've got a lot more to come. Uh, so with that, Dr. Steele, you know, Republicans uh, are doing decently well in the House so far, um, and driving that in part is inflation. Uh, if Republicans uh, are taking the House, do you see any alleviation of inflation ahead? Do you, do you think this uh, makes sense? I think that's not very likely to... Inflation has actually come into effect because of Federal Reserve policy, and those policies have already been conducted, and we're not going to see a a rapid end to inflation. There's very little that that could be done right now to counteract that. Now, uh, there's certainly been some discussion, uh, even at the state level, about inflation taking a role. It's been very interesting how that is... uh, Overtaken all of the political discussions, it seems, that and, of course, abortion. Uh, on the cultural side, why do you think inflation right now has just infatuated voters and, and become such a key issue now, whereas it, it hasn't necessarily been uh, in, in past years, uh, the economy hasn't been quite as, quite as severe? Well, I think that's a pretty easy question to answer. It's not an infatuation. It's actually, uh, I think, a horror of what's going on. I think we've got very high inflation. It is being underestimated. I think part of that is uh, perhaps intentional. Um, We've switched. If we use the, we've switched to a chain-weighted kind of a system. If we use the old system that was used, say, during the Carter years, our inflation would definitely be double digits at this point. And I think that people regardless of what the federal government might issue as official statistics, what people actually face in their lives is rapidly rising prices. That's a real shock to people. And I think that's what makes the difference. If you go back, say, even a couple of years ago, we didn't have those inflation rates at all. We had a fairly stable uh, set of prices. And of course, that inflation rate comes from the expansion of the money supply, which especially came from the... uh, from the COVID period. Now, you wrote a piece in National Review back uh, earlier in the year in honor of the 75th anniversary of the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, the title, The Fight Against Big Government Started Here. Um, Again, this is in the spring. And you talk about this larger conversation about the issue of big government, which certainly with the rising money supply due to uh, government spending, uh, that's a that's a key issue, but certainly there's critics of um, limited government, of fiscal responsibility on both the left and the right. Uh, focus of your piece is on the left, but you don't uh, hesitate to take shots against Adrian Vermeule or Orrin Cass, um, you know, who, who for our listeners, big government, pro uh, administrative state, uh, right wingers at uh, Harvard and American Compass, respectively. Um, but 
uh, in the beginning of your conclusion, you, you write, proponents of liberty have been far less effective at shaping institutions. Although the case for a free society is strong, arguing harder isn't a solution. Strategy is. Do you think the future is bright for the proponents of liberty? Will they get strategy or are they poised for extinction in the face of left and right-wing advocates for big government? <laughs> well, that's quite a question. Uh, first of all, I am I'm never a defeatist. I always think that as my boat is sinking, why I'm getting a chance to swim or something like this. Um, I don't think that the future is, is by any means doomed. I think that the problem is that too many people um, from the limited government side have thought that arguing harder is the solution. We just haven't made our arguments clearly enough. And you know, I don't think that's really correct. Um, I think one of the things that has happened, this is what I, would, what I meant by the institutions, is that uh, there's been a kind of a long march through the institutions, the sort of thing that, um, that Antonio Gramsci had suggested Way back, he was a member of the. He was the president of the head of the Italian Communist Party, and he had he had argued that the battle for Marxism had been lost in arguing on economic grounds. It was necessary to move to cultural grounds, and that it would be necessary to convince people for other reasons of the necessity of big government or really socialism in his case. And I think that's where uh, people who in, are interested in limited government have not done very well. Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Josh Barker here. Uh, we're getting more results from the state of Michigan. 13% of the vote in Gretchen Whitmer uh, ahead with 53.8% of the vote. Tudor Dixon, 44%. Again, 13% isn't huge for Michigan, but uh, we're seeing pretty consistency, uh, a lot of consistency with Whitmer being ahead as, as she's been so far. Uh, as far as the ballot propositions go, Prop 3, the, the keynote, uh, ballot proposition ahead 56% to 44%. Again, still outperforming the governor. Uh, other key races in, in the state of Ohio, we, we mentioned uh, Vance is in the lead. His lead is uh, diminishing right now 51.5% over Tim Ryan, the Democrat, 48.5%. Uh, interesting comparison to the governor's race in the same state, Mike DeWine up over Nan Whaley, 62% to 38%. Uh, so that's a 25-point lead for Mike DeWine, 3% lead for J.D. Vance. Uh, Virginia 7, which we talked about at the very beginning of the night, uh, one of the more competitive races in the state of Virginia, uh, D.C. suburbs and some rural areas, uh, it was looking pretty good for the Democrats, 88% reporting, and now uh, barely the Republican candidate, Yesley Vega, is ahead of current incumbent uh, Abigail Spanberger. Um, all very interesting results. Dr. Steele, as far as, uh, you know, we, we've talked about inflation and, and big government, uh, regulation uh, coming with the proposals from the Green New Deal uh, has been something that has been talked about a fair amount, but less so this election cycle, interestingly, um, the president tried to pass some of uh, this legislation and it didn't get very far, uh, thanks in part to the Senate. Uh, if some of the aspects of the Green New Deal were to pass, if Democrats maintain or gain more control in the Senate uh, tonight, uh, what, what do you see that impact having 
uh, on voters here in Michigan and, and across the country? Is is that uh, going to pose a significant challenge to the economy, or or will that just be you know more of the status quo as far as we've had big regulations, EPA, and all of that this whole time? Well, to answer that, let me return to this question you had asked about about that I answered with a long march through the institutions. Because what's really fundamental, let me give two examples of what that might mean. If you look at the way that education, uh, education training is conducted in this country, first education schools were taken over by progressives and uh, promoted progressive education. And then we've had really what are radical leftists who've taken over education programs. So that is the way in which the left has been able to begin reaching into school systems and indoctrinating, frankly, indoctrinating people through through the school systems. That's the long march. That's the example of the kind of thing I mean. It doesn't matter what the politicians say or do, so long as that's what's going on. Another example is the development of the administrative state. The administrative state is the primary maker of law in this country at this point. Uh, we will get the if 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 we. If that isn't dismantled or stopped, we will get the Green New Deal through, through regulation. So, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, is now doing studies and in investigations in Texas on uh, methane releases from fossil fuel production. And this could be used to shut down small independent producers. So you get the Green New Deal regardless. The real danger of this, of this regulation, is that this will probably be the mo- this will be the most serious thing that will hurt the economy. You couple that, which will give you a downturn and make it much more expensive to produce output, a downturn in GDP. Plus, you then you have the inflation on top of it from the expansion of the money supply. You have a real disaster on hand, and that's not going to be. Uh, uh, we're not going to take care of that simply by getting people into office and having them vote for a little bit less. Uh, less government or something, because the big government is is not not in that. Radio Free Hillsdale, one hundred one point seven FM. Josh Barker here. This is Dr. Charles Steele, our student panel, Maddie Grace Watson, and Luke Spangler. Um, more results uh, coming in uh, at the moment. It looks like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, according to the New York Times, has a fifty three percent chance of winning. So just slightly over fifty percent. That's that's their ranking based on what's currently coming in. Um, but interestingly, in Georgia, New York Times has Walker, the Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate, with a sixty one percent chance of winning. Uh, Luke Spangler, t- tell us about what you're looking at. Are there uh, any other interesting results that you're seeing? So overall, uh, tonight I think we were fooled by a massively uh, strong swing towards the Republicans in Florida at the beginning of the night. Um, Just watching returns in general, um, I think we're back to where uh, most people thought where we were to the start of the night, where Republicans might, should make, in the end, enough modest gains in the House to take that body, and the Senate is going to be still in limbo probably for the week, uh, days, and maybe even weeks ahead if Georgia goes to runoff. Um, Just so many tight races. Um, and just not a clear, decisive victory in any major race outside of Florida yet. Well, speaking of victory, uh, Chuck Grassley has been cr- proclaimed the victor in Iowa in what is not a shocking upset by any means, um, but uh, certainly interesting. Uh, so uh, Chuck Grassley has been called for Iowa's Senate seat. 
Um, in North Carolina, New York Times gives uh, Republican uh, Bud a 93% chance of winning that Senate seat. Uh, it's, it's been almost surprisingly close early on in North Carolina since that wasn't really uh, expected to be as much of a battleground state. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting as more results come in from there. Uh, with that, uh, New Hampshire Senate, uh, that was some Republicans had supposed they might be able to take uh, back New Hampshire. Right now, looks like Maggie Hassan has a 76% chance of winning that race. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM live election night coverage. It is 5 till 10 here. I'm Josh Barker. Up next, the Salem News headlines and then Moira Gleason on elections in my home state of Georgia, governor's uh, and Senate race, both hotly contested. After that, Adam Carrington is on deck. Associate Professor of Politics Haley Strack will be back joining him and me at 10. We'll see you all on the other side of the break. WRFH LP Hillsdale. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters reporting. Former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders was elected Arkansas governor on Tuesday, becoming the first woman to lead the state in the highest-profile Trump administration official in elected office. Sanders defeated Democratic nominee Chris Jones in the race for governor in her predominantly Republican home state, where former President Donald Trump remains very popular. Sanders had been heavily favored to win the race, which also included Libertarian nominee Ricky Dale Harris. In Florida, Republican U.S. Senator Marco Rubio has won a third term, defeating U.S. Congresswoman Val Demings and holding a key seat as the GOP tries to regain control of a closely divided Senate. In the State House, Ron DeSantis has won re-election as governor against former governor and Republican Charlie Crist. On Wall Street, the Dow by 333 points. This is SRN News. In 2018, then-Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp faced Georgia House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams in the race for governor of Georgia. Now it's happening all over again. Georgia's governor has been a Republican since 2002, but tonight, that could change. In 2018, Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams by a narrow 50 to 49 percent, and this was 2018 when the environment was heavily in the Democrats' favor. Abrams never conceded the election, but instead claimed that it was stolen by the Republicans. Despite this denial, she's back and running once again to unseat Kemp. In 2020, Georgia saw a massive upset. President Biden narrowly won the state by just under 12,000 votes. In a Senate runoff in January 2021, Raphael Warnock beat then-Senator Kelly Loeffler 51 to 49 percent, a margin of almost 100,000 votes. The Georgia primary was particularly interesting. Because Governor Kemp refused to decertify the state's 2020 election at the request of Donald Trump, he earned the president's hatred. Trump prodded former Senator David Perdue to run against Kemp in the primary. Despite Trump's public support in campaigning for Purdue and blasting of Kemp, Kemp sailed through the primary, winning 73% of the vote. The Trump-endorsed Senate candidate Herschel Walker also won his primary with a wide margin. However, he has been trailing his opponent in the polls. Unlike Walker, Governor Kemp is up in the polls. Real Clear Politics has him leading Abrams by over seven points. That doesn't mean it won't be a hard-fought race, nor is Kemp's victory assured. It all depends on voter turnout and the influence of Kemp's pro-life stance and signing of a heartbeat bill. Will tonight vindicate Governor Kemp and repeat 2018, or will Stacey Abrams get the chance to change history and finally take her place as the first black and first female governor of the state of Georgia? 
Since 1996, Georgia had voted for Republicans in every presidential election. Since 2004, both U.S. Senators were Republicans, and Republicans held both houses of the state legislature. Georgia was not on the Democrats' radar in 2016, or really much at all until the very end in 2020. On Election Day 2020, the real clear politics average remained with Trump in the lead in Georgia. Then the polls closed, and in a shocking upset, President Biden won the state of Georgia by just under 12,000 votes, a mere 0.2% of the total vote cast. An extraordinarily rare set of circumstances led to both of Georgia's Senate seats also being put on the ballot. Control of the U.S. Senate lay with Georgia, but the outcome was delayed because the state's law required the winner to have over 50% of the vote, leading to a runoff election for both seats. After the January runoff, both Georgia's Senate seats were held by Democrats. This surprising upset in the last election makes Georgia a key state to watch tonight and in looking ahead to 2024. Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock, first elected in that January 2021 runoff, is on the ballot tonight facing Republican candidate Herschel Walker, best known as a former football star for the University of Georgia. It's been a tumultuous race for sure. Warnock faced accusations of domestic abuse by his ex-wife in 2020, including police footage from an incident when he ran over his wife's foot with his car. This time around, his opponent, Herschel Walker, also has a history of domestic assault and a mental disorder. Walker's opposition to abortion, but subsequent revelations that he paid for abortions of his former sexual partners has led to criticism as well. This race is rated as a toss-up, and anything could happen. So keep your eyes on Georgia. Election night 2022. The longest evenly divided Senate is likely about to come to an end. Who will take control? I think Democrats right now would win a majority in the Senate. Republicans are still favored to capture the House. The Senate is essentially a toss-up. The race to control both houses of Congress and the Michigan State Legislature are all hanging in the balance, with economic issues playing a key role. Joe Biden owns this inflation problem. I've done everything in my power to blunt Putin's gas price hike. Abortion has inflamed tensions. And with your support, I'll sign a law codifying Roe in January. From the Hillsdale City Council. Why, why are your roads not fixed? I would not have a problem with an ordinance outlawing pit bulls in this city. To statewide ballot referendums. So it's a very dangerous, very evil proposal. Proposal two on the ballot. And races across the country. As the governor of Georgia, I will work very closely with the Federal Reserve. And when I get to the U.S. Senate, I will not forget about you. The team at Radio Free Hillsdale is watching the results that matter to you. Our eyes are there. More breaking news in the state of Louisiana. Two different visions are on the ballot. Which will prevail? Let's keep building back better. We have to eliminate this permanent ruling class in Washington. Freedom is worth fighting for. The coverage starts... Now. Live from the Serial Center at Hillsdale College, this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, Election Night 2022. And here on the East Coast, I'm Josh Barker, and this is WRFHLP Hillsdale. Polls just closed in four states, including the battleground state of Nevada. All eyes will be turning there to see whether Republicans might flip that seat and gain control of the Senate. Returning with me this hour, we have Haley Strack, senior reporter for the Collegian. Our special guest is Dr. Adam Carrington, associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He earned his PhD from Baylor University and is the author of Justice Stephen Field's Cooperative Constitution of Liberty, Liberty in Full. Dr. Carrington, thanks so much for coming on. 
Great to be here with you. I'm a bit of an election junkie, so it's nice to see other people have that same addiction as I do. So, hi, everybody. Yes, and thank you, thank you to everyone here uh, in the Searle Center and everyone tuning in live uh, on the radio. Uh, some results for you from Michigan. Uh, Hillsdale uh, County is still not uh, reporting results locally, but we do have uh, about 13% of the vote in statewide on Prop 3, uh, the most watched proposition here in the state of Michigan. Right now, as far as that goes, yes is at 58% to know at 41.9%. So it is outperforming Governor Whitmer, who currently stands 51.7% to Tudor Dixon's 46.8%. Again, this is 13% of the vote in. There's still plenty more to come, uh, but this has been pretty consistent uh, from 1% until now throughout the night. Uh, So certainly we'll be following that. Um, Dr. Carrington, we want to ask you about some of these issues uh, the courts have been a huge uh, talking point, particularly for uh, the Democrats, go, as, as far as that they've argued that uh, at the end of President Trump's term, the appointment of his Supreme Court justices have uh, radicalized the Supreme Court and potentially – uh, maybe court packing might potentially be the answer, some people are saying. Uh, how, how has the court in this past year really changed on some of these key issues? Of course, abortion is the highlight one, but we've seen some other issues, First Amendment, Second Amendment. Uh, what, what are you seeing there with, with some of that and how, how that's playing? Well, on, on the court itself, I, I would say that one of the big changes has been that you've gotten a working majority for what's often known as either textualism or originalism, which you really have not had on the court up to this point. And that's been a decades-long project by groups like the Federalist Society, uh, more right-leaning groups as well, to say that this approach to the Constitution is actually the best way to respect the rule of law, the best way to bring about a reading of the Constitution that understands it as it was originally intended. And you saw that especially in the argument for Dobbs that came out, which is obviously the biggest case, but also uh, Bruin, one of the cases out of New York for the Second Amendment, a number of First Amendment cases with religious liberty. And I think that that triumph on the court has actually flipped things a bit in the public sphere for a very long time. electing, Electing candidates that would then put certain people on the court was very much a a conservative idea and was very much driving conservatives to the polls and not so much Democrats. I think you've seen that flip a bit now. Uh, We're going to see tonight how how it plays out in particular, but you see an energy in regards to how elections affect the courts on the political left to a degree that's not been the case in the past. Normally that energy was on the right. Now, Dr. Carrington, shifting focus to a different state, but still an issue with a court. In Arizona, the um, campaigns for Carrie Lake and Blake Masters in conjunction with the RNC filed an emergency suit a couple of hours ago seeking to keep the polls open a few hours. And now this is not an unusual practice, but especially in such a battleground state as Arizona from an election denier such as Carrie Lake. Um, What do you think is going to happen? The judge rejected the lawsuit, but what do you think will happen with poll numbers? Do you think we're expected to see Arizona numbers soon? Uh, I think at least in the the smaller counties, that will come in quicker. Uh, Maricopa County, if you remember from 2020, 
was glacial in coming in, and I think that's going to be the case now because even before the rise in early voting that came in 2020, um, because of the large senior citizen population, Arizona has always been very high early votes that take a while to tabulate. As far as you were saying about those lawsuits, the, the difficulty in extending those hours uh, for a judge is sort of equal application of the laws. If there was some breakdown in a particular county where they were not given enough time to vote, you might extend the hours. Otherwise, what will happen is a, a candidate will sue to have the polls kept open in very vote-rich counties for them and not others. So that's where a judge has to take into account, is he giving an unfair advantage to one side or the other? And does the, the, the people they're suing have a legitimate reason to make that? But yeah, I think we'll start to see things in. But Maricopa County is such a huge a bit of Arizona's votes, it's going to be hard to figure out what things are going to look like till that comes in. And that's going to be one of the last to come in. So, uh, you know, if you want to stay up all night, keep watching that county. But we, we may be in for a light, late night as far as Arizona is concerned. So, Dr. Carrington, again, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Dr. Adam Carrington with us. Josh Barker here. Haley Strack, as you uh, you just heard before that. Um, as far as the races that you're looking at tonight, uh, what, what do you think are some of the most important races? And do you have any predictions about the House or potentially even the Senate and, and which way that will go? Yeah, I think that... Um one, one underreported thing is going to be the degree to which state legislatures go Republican, which I think they will pretty solidly. But I know there's been a lot of talk about ballot initiatives with abortion, for example. But a lot of the real decisions are going to be made in the state legislatures and already have been. So what is the status of the state legislatures at the end of the night? Uh, I think that is an under-discussed one. Um, as far as predictions, I, I think it's going to be a – it's looking to be a good but not necessarily great night for Republicans so far, but it's still so early. Uh, it looks like the Senate is going to be razor thin one way or another. I, I would still think the Republicans are going to take it. Um, the House is already razor thin, but I wouldn't be surprised if Republicans still pick up um, 25 seats or so. And that would actually be historically in line. I, I was trying to – I was telling some of my students this morning – uh, if you look at, say, uh, 2018, the President Trump was in, in office and his party lost 40 seats. If you go back to 2010, President Obama was in power, his party lost 63 seats in the House. If you go back to 1994, Bill Clinton was in power, his party lost 54 seats. So these large swings in a midterm uh, it, it would not be out of out of the norm, and I think given things like inflation, given the the, uh, the the problems that the Biden administration has had, it would, if anything, twenty to twenty five seats would be on the low end. I think of what one could expect in an election like this. So, and regarding our predictions, what are you predicting for ballot proposals on abortion in Kansas and Michigan? Well, I, I think that it's most likely that they're going to pass. And what I mean by that is that there is going to be a codification of uh, the right to an abortion in the law from the voters. And I think what that shows is as much as the pro-life movement was celebrating the win in Dobbs, it was a shift in the debate, not a winning of the debate. And the shift in the debate was now you're going to have to make the case to voters and you're going to start to see that there is a diversity of, of uh, sort of the abortion debate at the court level 
at times seem to make things like an all-or-nothing proposition, a completely pro-life or a completely pro-choice position. It seems like a lot of voters are somewhere in the middle, and you're going to have to make that argument to them why the pro-life movement should not only have won in the court, but now needs to win at the ballot box. And it's going to be interesting to watch the argument shift from the very legal-based arguments that were made to overturn Roe v. Wade to the political arguments of arguing that pro-life cause in that sphere. They're not necessarily, they're, they're, they're based in the same truth, but they're not necessarily going to get there by making the same kind of arguments. So it's going to be very interesting to, to see how that plays out. But I think that early on, the pro-life movement is taking hits in the political sphere, and the question is not in any way does that mean they've lost definitively, but how are they going to come back and, and, and reconstitute their argument? All right, this is Radio Free Hillsdale live election night coverage. We'll be talking more about abortion and Prop 3 as well as other things after the break. This has been Dr. Adam Carrington, Haley Strack, Josh Barker. After the break, we'll be back with Avery Noel, Gabriel Powell, and Elizabeth Troutman. We'll see you then. The state of Ohio has leaned Republican for most of the last 30 years. However, tonight that may change. Currently, all the statewide officials, both houses of the state legislature, 12 of its 16 congressmen, and one of its two senators are Republican. Despite this, the Ohio Senate race remains up in the air. Incumbent Senator Rob Portman, a Republican, is retiring, leaving the seat open. Vying to replace Portman is Democrat Congressman Tim Ryan, who represents Ohio's 17th district in the House of Representatives, and Republican J.D. Vance, an attorney and venture capitalist best known for authoring a New York Times best-selling autobiography, Hillbilly Elegy. In 2020, Donald Trump won the state of Ohio by eight points, 53 to 45. However, in 2018, Democrat Senator Sherrod Brown held his own with a 53 to 47% win against a Republican challenger. Current polling has Vance narrowly ahead of Ryan, but anything could happen tonight. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters reporting the midterm election is shaping up to be a red wave with a number of key victories for Republicans. Bob Agnew reports from the SRN News Decision Desk. Bob? Keith, big uh, news this hour from Sarah Huckabee Sanders as she wins the Arkansas governor's race. Sanders defeated Democratic nominee Chris Jones in the race for governor in her predominantly Republican home state where former President Trump remains popular. Sanders has been heavily favored to win the race, which also included Libertarian nominee Ricky Dale Harrington. Sanders shattered state fundraising records with her campaign, which focused primarily on national issues. That is correspondent Bernie Bennett. Two major Republican victories today in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis there outpacing Democrat Charlie Crist to win another term. And Republican U.S. Senator Marco Rubio has won a third term, defeating U.S. Representative Val Demings and holding a key seat as the GOP tries to regain control of the closely divided Senate. Keith? Florida is battening down the hatches and awaiting the arrival of Tropical Storm Nicole, which is expected to be a hurricane by the time it hits Wednesday. National Hurricane Center Senior Specialist Jack Bevan says hurricane warnings are in effect, with Nicole expected to make landfall Wednesday night along Florida's Atlantic coastline. This won't be as prolific of a rainfall producer as it, 
we are looking at the possibility of three to five inches of rain with local areas of seven inches of rain across parts of the Florida Peninsula as the storm comes in. Orlando International Airport is one of the places shutting down because of the impending storm. Ukraine's president has suggested he's open to peace talks with Russia but is sticking to Kiev's demands. Volodymyr Zelensky is appealing to the international community to force Russia into real peace talks. And it reflected a softening of his refusal to negotiate with Moscow while Russian President Vladimir Putin is in power. This is SRN News. Nevada is a purple state and has been considered one of the battleground states the past several election cycles. Once again, it is in the public eye as Republicans might flip its Senate seat, gaining control of the Senate. The race is between incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Mazzo and Republican and former State Attorney General Adam Laxalt. Last time she was on the ballot in 2016, Senator Cortez Mazzo won by three points. Laxalt was last on the ballot in 2018 running for governor and lost by four points. However, unlike 2018, this year is a fairly unfavorable environment for Democrats. Real clear politics average has Laxalt ahead by one point, and every major polling outlet rates this race as a toss-up. We'll see what happens. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 2022 live election night coverage. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm joined by my student panel here. This is Avery Noel, co-president of the Hillsdale College Democrats, is back with us. Gabriel Powell, senior studying politics, also here. And joining us for the first time this evening, Elizabeth Troutman, the news editor for The Collegian, a George Washington fellow here at Hillsdale College. Uh, we've seen a lot of results coming in, but again, it's still early, even though it's 10 o'clock. Uh, Avery, tell us about what you're seeing across the country, especially when it comes to the Senate elections. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing so far is that the over over-enthusiasm from Republicans about a red wave is not really coming to fruition. I think we're seeing overperformance in Democrats in key areas uh, such as Maricopa County in Arizona where Mark Kelly is leading by 26 points um, as well as in situations such as Pennsylvania where Fetterman is outperforming what he was expected to do and in Ohio where although Vance is leading, Ryan is likely to make a comeback as more absentee ballots come in from the large city centers such as Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus. Some races that are not necessarily uh, battleground races, but worth mentioning, Colorado Senate Michael Bennett is projected to win re-election there. Um, not a terrible surprise. A Josh Shapiro, Democrat for Pennsylvania governor. So again, we're talking about the Pennsylvania Senate being a battleground state. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's, it's very interesting, the governor versus Senate races, certainly very different. Um, it'll be interesting to see if perhaps that has some uh, boost for Fetterman. Uh, all of that and more uh, we'll get to. Right, right now, we want to focus uh, a little bit of time on both Prop 3 and then cultural issues a little bit more broadly. Uh, we talked about Prop 3 a little bit earlier, but I want to spend a lot more time talking about it now. Um, some of you here earlier in the night, Mr. Lloydheiser and I talked about it. Uh, 
So some say it'll codify Roe, which, as we've talked about earlier, that really means Planned Parenthood v. Casey, because I, I haven't heard anyone arguing for the trimester framework. It's uh, viability. Casey essentially says, you know, if the infant can survive outside the mother, the state can say, well, you know, don't kill it on its way out. Um, but Prop 3 uh, has wide rights to bodily autonomy, and it does allow the state to prohibit abortion after fe- fetal viability except in cases, quote, needed to protect a patient's life or physical or mental health. Um, Avery, that perhaps some said, well, life, that makes sense. Physical health, that makes sense. But mental health, that seems like a pretty broad exemption. Some are concerned bodily autonomy. What exactly does that mean? How broad does that extend? Uh, what exactly do you think Prop, two, or Prop 3 rather <laughs> will do if it is passed? Yeah, I think the perspective from Democrats is that Proposal 3 really is a codification of Casey with caveats for the life and the mental health of the mother. Now, what the mental health of the mother entails, especially whenever you're looking at late-term abortions, third-trimester abortions, is really vital because what happens is when a woman is in the third trimester of a pregnancy, regardless of the situation, she's been planning to have this child for a while. The vast majority of abortions occur within the early weeks and months of a pregnancy. So when you get to the third trimester, the woman has probably picked out a name, has probably been buying things for the child. And so there must be a significant change that has occurred to lead this woman to need an abortion. And that's why I think the mental health aspect of it is so important as we continue to educate ourselves further on mental health and its ramifications for both our political needs as well as our socioeconomic needs. So, so for clarification there, are you saying that all third trimester abortions would qualify for the mental health exemption or that a woman would be undergoing a mental health trauma? Could you just clarify exactly what, what you're meaning there. Do you, do you think that essentially this will legalize abortion up till birth? Is that kind of what you're saying? I don't think that that's necessarily what it means. I think that it's very restrictive on the state legislature and what it may legislate following the passage of Proposal 3, but I don't think that it would allow all abortions to take place following the fetal viability standard. And I also think it's really important that you're addressing that this puts the decision in the hands of doctors and in the hands of women instead of the state legislature. And really, regardless of how you feel on abortion, I think that a lot of people would agree that that's where the decision should reside. Gabriel, do you agree that is where the decision should reside? Well, I think it depends on what decision is being made. I mean, if the decision is about a woman's health, Sure, but we're talking about a child at this point. Like in the third trimester, he said, you've got a name picked out. You recognize this as a child. I don't think that's a decision that a doctor should be able to make. You don't have the option to kill a child three weeks after it's born. Why should you have the option three weeks prior to that? I, I also think that the, the description of a mental health exemption is something that could be very very tedious to unwind. That's something that is almost certainly going to end up in the courts at some point because that can be defined in a number of ways. And whether the legislature tries to define it or whether someone tries to bring a case at that point, that's going to end up in the courts. And that really brings us back to the same point at the state level where we were with Roe and Casey constantly litigating about what viability means and what an undue burden is. So I think it just brings us back to the same square I would note, however, I mean, in Michigan, we're set between really two extremes. I mean, the country 
I, th I think the general standard is that most people think 12 to 15 weeks is roughly an appropriate cutoff, but we're stuck between the 1931 law, no exceptions from conception, and then you go all the way over to what we have on Prop 3, which is until viability, but with all these exceptions after viability. And that's a really interesting push point to see where people line up on this, I think. Why do you think we're not seeing moderation in, in that sense, where, where we're not getting to some sort of middle road? I, you know, that's a very interesting question. And I think the, the way Proposition 3 is phrased, given that it says viability, but then you have these exceptions, I, I think it's phrased at least to offer that possibility. But again, you get into what is the mental health exception and depending on how broadly you define that, that could be basically anything. Or if it's defined more narrowly, then it could be closer to that point. Because with medical science progressing the way it is, children are viable at a younger and younger age. So again, I think that what you define as a mental health exception is going to be really what defines what this means. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker and my student panel, Avery Noel, Gabriel Powell, and Elizabeth Troutman. Elizabeth, you're from Florida. Uh, that's something we've been talking about tonight. Uh, Florida has a pretty good quick returns, so we actually have a little bit more to talk about there than we do uh, even here in Michigan, despite having uh, over an hour to get results. Um, if any prominent Republican can be said to be a culture warrior, I think Governor DeSantis would probably qualify. Um, <laughs> probably, maybe even the first person coming to mind. Uh, he's been fighting against children being allowed at drag shows, certainly on abortion, as we've been discussing, uh, going more broadly on these cultural issues, do you think this is an effective tactic? Uh, and and will, will this work nationwide? Um, I think, yeah, Governor DeSantis' tactic have been pretty effective in Florida. He has secured parental rights and education so that Florida parents can rest assured that their children in kindergarten to third grade will not be indoctrinated by inappropriate materials. He is um, preventing children from being able to make um, irreversible decisions about their bodies before they're 18. And I think that this is a message which has really raised his popularity in Florida a lot. In, when he ran um, the first time against Charlie Crist, he won by a, not against Charlie Crist, um, when he ran the first time, he, was, he won by a much smaller margin than what he won by this year. And I think that shows that his message is really resonating with Florida voters. Avery, uh, on some of the cultural issues, Democrats have somewhat of an uphill battle, as we saw in Virginia last year, uh, some Democratic strongholds, uh, Loudoun County, for instance, uh, went for Glenn Youngkin. The theory was perhaps they weren't fans of critical race theory in classrooms. Uh, but even more broader, I mean, some of the policies regarding like children transitioning, for instance, you know, some of that gets pub publicized, and then you know, in Vanderbilt Hospital, they then take it off their website. They say, oh, actually, we don't do any of this. But abortion is different and definitely seems to be in the Democrats' favor. So to, to what extent do you see Democrats being able to capitalize on some of these cultural issues? And do you think potentially they could go all in on some of these issues and maybe even change public perception about things that are currently more unpopular with the public and that, that they might succeed in doing so? Yeah, I think as we've kind of moved um, in this post-Dobbs era especially, we're seeing an uh, an era in which 
Democrats for the first time are deciding to run on abortion rights, and I think that's a really significant shift. Um, and a lot of Democrats have specifically cited this election as a referendum on the Supreme Court, um, and that entails obviously Dobbs, but also, as Tom, Clarence Justice Thomas noticed, noted in his dissent, um, the overturning of Obergefell and the overturning of potentially the right to contraception, um, which I think are some of those cultural issues which, as we have moved further along from the passage of those decisions, there has been more acceptance. So I think that, yes, in fact, abortion is one of these issues that as we recognize what happens when these rights are taken away, you start to see a shift towards more acceptance. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Uh, Michigan, we're now at about 22% of the vote counted. Governor Whitmer is ahead with 51.2% of the vote. Tudor Dixon at 47.2%. When it comes to some of these other races, it's it's sort of interesting. Attorney General and Secretary of State, uh, both Dana Nessel and Jocelyn Benson, the Democrats for those respective races, and they're both incumbents uh, as well, they're leading with 52% of the vote. So they have a little bit more than a percent uh, ahead of Whitmer uh, and certainly leading their Republican counterparts by uh, even larger margins. We were just discussing abortion and some of the cultural issues. Ballot Proposition 3 has a little bit less counted, or at least is is reported currently. It's at 17% is counted. Uh, Yes, uh, for Proposition 3 is ahead, 56.7%. Um, certainly interesting results. Uh, Elizabeth, what is your, uh, you look at this, what is your takeaway from some of that? I think this is very concerning if a constitutional amendment is added um, of proposition, of proposal three, it goes far beyond codifying Roe. It legalizes abortion on demand in all three trimesters of pregnancy. I think that that's a really dangerous thing and I hope that we'll see a turnaround later tonight in that so uh, right before we go to break i want to mention a few more of the results that are coming in that are very interesting uh with arizona we got 40 percent of the vote in there uh the senate seat uh mark kelly versus blake masters mark kelly is leading 56 percent to 41 percent in the governor's race Katie Hobbs, the Democrat leading Carrie Lake, 55% to 44%. Uh, they're uh, 38% in. In Ohio, J.D. Vance is supposed to, uh, it's likely already supposed to win, so says the New York Times. I'm Josh Barker. This is Radio Free Hillsdale Live Election Night coverage. All of that and more coming up after the break. be self-evident that all men are created equal. Our collective futures depends on your willingness to uphold your duties as a citizen, to vote. We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. For the free and secret ballot, is the real keystone of our American constitutional system. 
and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Across the country, citizens voted in large numbers. They showed a watching world the vitality of America's democracy and the strides we have made toward a more perfect union. Your vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful non-violent tool we have to create a more perfect union. Get out and vote. We need every single one of you to get out and to vote. Most of all, no matter what, vote. I want you to decide right here, right now, unless you've done it already, that you are going to vote. This is 2022 election night coverage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. Well, it's 1030, uh, half past the hour, and it's certainly been an evening. Um, we've got a great panel lined up right now. Uh, for those in person, uh, on the far right, we have Luke Spangler, Junior at Hillsdale College, studying economics and French. In the center, we have Connor Bolanos, a senior Winston Churchill fellow at Hillsdale, studying politics and history. He's a host of Defense Now and History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillsdale, and Joseph Sturdy, a junior, and George Washington Fellow here at Hillsdale College. Um, Connor, I want to get from you uh, Wisconsin. We haven't talked about it a whole lot tonight. Um, We might not have talked about it at all yet, but there's some interesting results out there. It was lean lean Republican uh, last I looked uh, yesterday as far as the polling goes. We have some results, and what can you tell us about that? Yeah, a lot of the polls I saw saw Wisconsin going Republican in the Senate race and kind of a toss-up in the governorship. What we're seeing right now, though, with 53% of the vote in is that in regards to the Senate, uh, Democratic challenger Mandela Barnes is beating uh, incumbent Republican Ron Johnson 50.1% to 49.9%, so a very tight race there, but certainly not anything uh, substantial or uh, – large for Ron Johnson. In the governor's race, though, perhaps a little bit of a reprieve for Democrats who were worried that that was going to be a bit more of a challenge. Tony Evers, with 53% of the vote in, is leading 51.8% to 47.2% over his Republican challenger. Luke Spengler, uh, tell us a little bit about Pennsylvania. It looked like the governor's race there has been called. Um, What are you seeing there, uh, especially comparing the governor's race to the Senate race there? Yeah, so um, NBC News has projected that Democrat Josh Shapiro will beat Republican Doug Ma- uh, Mastriano. Um, the polls reflected um, a large Democratic lead in this race. Um, Mastriano was a very polarizing candidate. He attended the January 6th rally um, after the 2020 election, and Democrats were very easily, very quick to paint him as an extremist on many other issues um, in his in other Mastriano's policies. In fact. Um, Josh Shapiro is also running very much far ahead of the other uh, major uh, race in Pennsylvania this evening, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, where Fetterman is still has a small lead over um, Dr. Oz. And uh, I am, of course, the resident Georgian and want to uh, give a shout out to my home state. But it's, a, it's a battleground state, so it's, it's worth talking about. The Senate race, Herschel Walker 
against incumbent Raphael Warnock. Walker is currently up 49.5% to 48.6%, a problem that some people should be aware of, or not necessarily a problem, but uh, when seeing he's ahead, well, he's not ahead above 50%. And in the state of Georgia, that means if he doesn't get above 50%, um, right now the Libertarian's at exactly 2%. So uh, if that remains the case, this will go to a runoff, and that means we will not know probably control of the Senate until much later, unless perhaps the Democrats pick up, or Republicans pick up several seats, or Democrats pick up a few uh, as well. So that's certainly interesting, something to keep your eye on. In Georgia right now, 76% of the votes in for Senate for governor, 71% in, but Brian Kemp has a pretty good lead. 54.2% 54.2% to Stacey Abrams, 45%. Now, guys, all of y'all are really into foreign policy. Um, several members of the Alexander Hamilton – well, all members of the Alexander Hamilton <laughs> Society, all, all of y'all are. Um, tell us about the movements going on internationally. Uh, we saw elections in the United Kingdom. We saw them in Italy. What, what is, what is, what's going on there and what should this tell us about what's shaping U.S. politics, starting on the end with Luke? Um, it's kind of hard to extrapolate between. There's two very different systems, oftentimes, between uh, the European electoral systems and uh, the American electoral system. But definitely there's international trends that uh, we can observe. For example, we saw Brexit, and that was almost immediately followed by Donald Trump's victory in the 2016 presidential election. Um, as Josh mentioned, we saw um, Georgia Maloney um, and her right-wing coalition take uh, win in Italy. But at the same time, um, we're seeing mixed results in the United Kingdom where polls show a left-wing uh, Labor Party um, is doing very well in the polls in, ahead of an upcoming election uh, next year. So kind of mixed results in Europe right now, and I would say maybe even the same tonight here in the United States. Certainly uh, when President Trump won and then there were some more nationalist candidates in Europe, people uh, said, oh, you know, Trump is spring on some international uh, revolution or, or something. Connor, what, what do you think about that? And, and what are your takes on what's going on in Europe internationally uh, and, and what, what you're seeing out there? Yeah, so if you've been reading the New York Times, you would pretty much think that there's the second rise of fascism going on over in Europe. Is that what's happening? Well, I, I don't think so, but at least the New York Times has been insisting that neo-Nazis and skinheads are becoming the, the largest governing party in Sweden's coalition, that Marie Le Pen made it again to the second round of the electoral elections in France, that Giorgio Maloney is a fascist and won in Italy, and that in Spain the hard-right Vox party uh, is seeing surging support. I think more so what you're seeing, though, and perhaps speaking of the broader trend, is the issue that we're seeing across the world is the consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is mainly that of inflation, rising energy costs. The U.K. pound, largely as a result of the war, has been on the decline, which is really what led to a lot of the issues for Liz Truss, who was the shortest ever prime minister. Uh, Funnily enough, a head of lettuce outlasted her tenure as prime minister. It was a live stream with the head of lettuce. She failed before that head of lettuce expired. But what you've really seen across the board is kind of a challenge to the various regimes. Lula, for example, in Brazil, uh, despite being uh, convicted for 10 years of, char- of uh, corruption charges, was uh, pardoned by the Supreme Court and allowed to run against Bolsonaro in a, in a sort of upset down there. And then Maloney was her own upset, and now we have uh, – the, the new UK Prime Minister, who's just had his first cabinet resignation today, too, perhaps in an echo of what Liz Truss had seen. 
And largely, I think, across the board, these are the results of the consequences of rising inflation. The interesting thing, though, perhaps, is based on what we're seeing tonight, in these countries, we've really seen, you could say, startling upsets, I guess. Uh, tonight, maybe we are seeing a startling upset of our own, insofar that there isn't as much of a red wave, perhaps, as Republicans were hoping for against the Democrats. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Josh Berger here with Luke Spangler, Connor Bolanos, and Joseph Sturdy. Uh, Mr. Sturdy, tell us about, uh, you know, you're also looking at these international trends. What, what are you seeing? What's standing out to you as far as what's going on on the world stage? Yeah, I think economics are looming very large right now in the international world. Um, you can see in Great Britain clearly that economics led to the downfall of Liz Truss and now the government of Sunak. Um, I would argue that Sunak has his work cut out for him simply because we are looking at one of the weakest UK pounds that has ever occurred. It's reached parity with the US dollar. Um, So he certainly has his work cut out for him. And as there's an election upcoming, this could be the end of a 10-year Conservative Party reign in Britain if this is not resolved quickly. Now, in the United States, I think it's interesting because we've seen our own economic turmoil here. And so we're not yet seeing the red wave that we predicted as a response to this economic turmoil. However, I would argue that the night is young and there are many, many issues on the ballot tonight. So where economics was the chief issue in Britain, it's not necessarily what's leading voters right now. Um, And as Connor mentioned before, if you're reading mainstream media, you're seeing that fascism is currently leading the world stage in terms of international politics, and I simply don't think that that's the reality. You have arguments that the election in Italy was a takeover of a fascist government. You have arguments that Bolsonaro himself was a fascist who was going to use the army to seize control. That, of course, did not not occur. Um, And as such, as we now are thinking not just for 2022, but 2024, there are arguments that Trump himself is a fascist. I think a lot of this reactionary politicking in which we use ad hominem to attack our opponents is really devastating to the political discourse, and I think that it's going to move us towards perhaps a more volatile politics. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We began our segment segment discussing Wisconsin, and we have to end talking about Wisconsin, too, uh, because 55% of the vote is now in, and Ron Johnson is up by 600 votes. That's not a lot. Uh, So they're both, I mean, if you do the percentages with rounding, they're basically 50% each. That's very close, definitely not the wide Uh, wider margin that was expected for Ron Johnson. I'm Josh Barker, and you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale live election night coverage. We'll be right back with more after the break. The state of Ohio has leaned Republican for most of the last 30 years. However, tonight that may change. Currently, all the statewide officials, both houses of the state legislature, 12 of its 16 congressmen, and one of its two senators are Republican. Despite this, the Ohio Senate race remains up in the air. Incumbent Senator Rob Portman, a Republican, is retiring, leaving the seat open. 
Vying to replace Portman is Democrat Congressman Tim Ryan, who represents Ohio's 17th district in the House of Representatives, and Republican J.D. Vance, an attorney and venture capitalist best known for authoring a New York Times best-selling autobiography, Hillbilly Elegy. In 2020, Donald Trump won the state of Ohio by eight points, 53 to 45. However, in 2018, Democrat Senator Sherrod Brown held his own with a 53 to 47% win against a Republican challenger. Current polling has Vance narrowly ahead of Ryan, but anything could happen tonight. Arizona has been a battleground state for the past several elections. Tonight, Arizonans have on the ballot Democrat Senator Mark Kelly and Republican Blake Masters. The latest rankings of the state put it as a toss-up or lean Democrat. Real Clear Politics average has Kelly up 1.5 points. In 2020, Mark Kelly won his seat by two points against incumbent Martha McSally, outperforming President Biden, who won the state by a mere 0.2%. Kelly had been leading Masters by four to five points in the Real Clear average as recently as early October, but in the most recent weeks, Masters has been closing the gap. After graduating from Stanford Law School, Masters began working for venture capitalist and businessman Peter Thiel, a co-founder of PayPal and the first outside investor in Facebook. Masters co-authored with Thiel the book Zero to One, and despite being the young age of 36, has risen to be Thiel's chief operating officer. Mark Kelly is also not without accomplishments. The former naval airman has spent 54 days in space as a NASA astronaut, alongside his twin brother, Scott Kelly. Mark's wife is former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Kelly ran as a moderate in 2020. However, unlike his counterpart, Kristen Sinema, he has supported Democrat proposals such as $15 an hour minimum wage and the elimination of the filibuster in the vote earlier this year. The race in Arizona could decide the fate of the U.S. Senate. Live from the Serial Center at Hillsdale College, this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM election night coverage. It is 10.45 here on the East Coast, 15 minutes from 11, where more polls close on the West Coast. That's California, Oregon, and Washington State, as well as the northern part of Idaho. Um, All of that is coming up very shortly. Uh, We've got some more results for all of you. We've been following the New York Times needle uh, for Senate and House control. Senate has stayed a toss-up all night. We're anticipating that it will stay a toss-up through the next hour or so. But the House control, it's staying at leaning Republican, and it's gone a little bit more in the Republican direction in the past hour. Started at 70% chance at 10. It's 10.45 now. It's up back to 74 where it was about at the beginning of the night certainly not the red wave that everyone was expecting to see but perhaps republicans may still gain control of the house well joining me this segment we've got a great panel uh luke spangler economics and french junior at hillsdale college is back with us as well as micah hart the assistant news director for radio free hillsdale And Josh Hypes, the political correspondent for the Hillsdale Collegian, also a Winston Churchill fellow. Uh, Guys, what are y'all seeing uh, as far as some of the key races here? Really, Georgia, uh, 
Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Uh, Micah, tell me, tell me about what you're seeing. I, I think it's a lot closer than a lot of us thought it was going to be tonight. I mean, we're looking at Herschel Walker. He's barely winning around 1% at 49.6. And as we've been saying, you know, there may have to be a runoff. And then we see states like Arizona where it's pretty close still. And we're really not sure what's going to happen. And I think a lot of us are still surprised it's what's happening. We were expecting this red wave and it's seeming like a red trickle right now. Luke, one of the things that we've been thinking about all night uh, is that, you know, it takes a while for all of this to get in. Georgia, perhaps, will be a runoff, meaning we won't know for a little bit. What, as we're looking now, you said at the beginning of the night, it's probably going to take a little bit. Do you think we're, we're going to have uh, any real answers as far as key Senate races called by the end of tonight? Um, it's almost impossible to say. I will say Nevada is probably very unlikely to call tonight. Um, Clark County has announced they're not releasing all the votes tonight. Uh, Pennsylvania earlier in the day announced uh, Philadelphia probably won't uh, get through all the vote counting tonight. So just because there's large bastions of votes still outstanding to be counted in the coming days ahead and maybe even a, a runoff in the Georgia Senate race. Um. Now, we began last hour talking with Dr. Postel, but Luke and Josh are up here for that. Uh, one of the things that came up was ranked choice voting. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. We won't be talking about results from the state of Alaska because it doesn't close until after we're already off the air. But it did have an interesting election earlier in the year in that um, due, due to the death of a congressperson, they had a special election to fill that vacancy, and they used ranked choice voting. Uh, that was very controversial uh, among some people when the results ended up with a Democrat getting that seat, uh, despite Republicans getting a plurality of the first vote. Uh, I want to turn to our panel to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I believe, as Senator Tom Cotton said, uh, ranked choice voting is a scam. Uh, is ranked choice voting a scam? Uh, Mr. Hypes, what, what are your takes uh, on on that Alaska yeah. and ranked choice voting? Yeah, well, I think the election earlier this year gives us a clear view of what ended up happening. A lot of Republicans ended up splitting their vote um, between uh, the Republican candidate, between Sarah Palin and Nick Bajic um, for the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and with the Democrats, so Mary Patola. So what ended up happening is that, like uh, Dr. Postel was saying, um, Democrats and independents secured their vote in Mary Patola while Republicans ended up splitting their vote, and it just ended up uh, with a candidate that I don't think any of the uh, Republicans really wanted. Luke, certainly ranked choice voting is supposed to give us results that more people get gets a consensus. That's kind of one of the ideas around it is that, you know, you can rank. And so even if perhaps your first choice candidate doesn't get in, uh, everybody's second choice will kind of prevail at the end of the day. Do you think that's uh, what what is happening here? Or, or perhaps is it is this a failure of the system to actually work as intended? Um, I'm actually not so opposed to ranked choice voting. Um, the Alaska is a great example. Um, if Republicans and Democrats had held a primary, Republicans would have nominated former Governor and McCain uh, 2008 running mate Sarah Palin, who Alaska 
through the ranked choice process clearly showed they did not um, did not like much at all. Um, Mary Patola even won a plurality of the vote there. The, the big problem I have with ranked choice voting is not how it um, uh, might disadvantage one candidate over another, which I don't think has been uh, proven too much, is that it takes days and it takes weeks after the election to determine the result. I mean, Alaska, it took three weeks after the special election to hell before they announced who won the race. And again, this year, it, they're not going to announce the winner of the House and Senate races because of ranked choice until two days before Thanksgiving. Now, to what extent do you think a voter, you know, the user error, that's something that some people brought up as a potential problem here in the uh, special election. There were a fair amount of people that could have flipped the election who just didn't put a second choice down. Do you think that they legitimately didn't have a second choice uh, or perhaps uh, they just didn't understand how the system works? Micah Hart, uh, Assistant News Director, Radio Free Hillsdale, what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts there? It's, it's a difficult system. It's not an easy thing to do. Like when I go and vote, I just fill in a bubble for one person and that's it. You have to rank them out. It's not the easiest thing. And then you have to know more about every candidate. And especially with races where there may be two Republicans, like we had with Palin's race in Alaska, it becomes confusing. You really don't know what to do in certain cases. And there are ways to learn as you go. So I think if people will start learning as they go in Alaska, but it's really difficult and not user-friendly at all. All right, we've still got a few more minutes for the break. Uh, Luke Spangler, uh, give us our latest breaking news. Uh, yes, just would like to report that NBC News has called the New Hampshire Senate race. Uh, Democratic incumbent Maggie Hassan uh, will win re-election to a second term, uh, defeating in what was thought to be maybe a close race, but um, former uh, General uh, Don Duke. Thank you for that. Uh, Michigan, we're still getting slowly more votes trickling in. 29% of the vote is counted for Governor Gretchen Whitmer, remains in the lead, 53%. Tudor Dixon at 45 uh, Of course, you got a few uh, third-party candidates, each with under 1% apiece. As far as Proposition 3 goes, it remains outperforming the governor. Uh, yes is at 55.8%. Uh, that's with less of the vote counted. That's only uh, 24% of the vote counted, but still in the lead. Uh, this this seems to be a trend. Uh, do you think something like, like this is going to continue? Do you think Whitmer will prevail and ballot Proposition 3 on abortion might potentially remain even more popular than the governor? Uh, Josh Hypes, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, I was following this... Uh election pretty closely over the summer and what I noticed is that the Dixon campaign faced a lot of challenges regarding funding in the early months of uh, after the primary um, you know you had the whole scandal with the uh, forged ba- uh, ballot canvassing um, with the Republican primary and so basically um, Whitmer has had a huge treasure trove of fundraising going into this election. I think that we're seeing is that that really did kind of push her over the edge. And whenever you're running also with a uh, ballot initiative like Proposal 3, it's much easier to get people out to vote and whenever they're motivated like that. All right. Well, you are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. It is seven minutes until the hour, 11 p.m. We've got a few more states about to close. Um, our final results before we go into the break. Uh, as was mentioned, uh, Hassan is reported to be winning in New Hampshire. 
in Arizona. Mark Kelly is still leading Blake Masters. We'll have more results at 11 when those polls are closing. Again, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We'll be right back. Oregon is the only state to have not elected a Republican governor at any time in the last 40 years. However, 2022 may be the perfect storm for the GOP in this state, as former state representative and Republican Christine Drazen has been narrowly leading polls against former State House Speaker and Democrat Tina Kotek. Incumbent Democratic Governor Kate Brown has been consistently polled as the most unpopular governor anywhere in the nation, despite this being a reliably Democratic state. Drazen has been aided in her quest to capture the governor's mansion by an independent candidate and former Democratic state senator, Betsy Johnson, who poll show is drawing Democratic voters disaffected by Governor Brown's tenure. Key issues have been the homeless crisis in Portland, inflation and the economy, and support for police. President Biden visited the state in October to boost Kotect. He had this to say about the 2022 midterms. This is, I think, the most important off-year election that we've had in since Roosevelt's time. I, I mean that sincerely, because so much is at stake. Most election forecasters rate the Oregon race as a toss-up. Tonight, Governor Gretchen Whitmer is going head-to-head with Tudor Dixon in the race for Michigan governor. The Real Clear Politics average has Whitmer ahead by a few points. In 2018, she won with 53% of the vote, compared to Republican Bill Schuette's 44%. However, things have changed since 2018. Generally, that was a very good year for Democrats as they took control of the House of Representatives in Congress. The Michigan delegation, for example, went from nine Republicans and five Democrats to tied at seven and seven. While they didn't gain control of the state legislature, Democrats gained five seats in the state House and another five in the state Senate. In 2020, Biden won by a much narrower margin of 51 to 48 percent. In 2022, the environment is much less favorable to Democrats nationwide, and that's likely to have an effect on the gubernatorial election here in Michigan. Whitmer's popularity has also receded throughout her term as many Michiganders became frustrated with the COVID-19 lockdowns, forcing children out of school and many businesses closed for months. After her lockdown executive orders were found unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court, the governor turned to issuing orders through the Public Health Department and the Department of Health and Human Services. While the legislature has attempted to pass legislation limiting the emergency powers of the governor, making it subject to expiration or consideration by the legislature as a lawmaking body, Governor Whitmer has vetoed every bill that would limit the governor's powers. In the summer of 2021, the legislature voted to enact a ballot initiative that repealed the 1945 Emergency Powers Law, a method not subject to a veto. However, despite Whitmer's COVID troubles, Dixon has certainly faced an uphill battle. While she gained on Whitmer in polling throughout October, narrowing the governor's lead, she has been plagued by the issue of abortion in particular. With Dobbs in June, the attention of many has turned to abortion in the midterms. However, Dixon's comments in July arguing against allowing abortion, even in cases of rape, drew some criticism. Here's her reasoning. Because I know people who are the product. I'd like this a life for me. That's how it is. We'll be watching the race for Michigan governor. With SRN News, I'm Tasha Stevens. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Republican Marco Rubio re-elected to another term. 
DeSantis defeated Democrat Charlie Crist. Rubio defeated Democrat Val Demings. DeSantis was elected governor of Florida in 2018. Rubio first elected to the Senate in 2010. Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be the next governor of Arkansas. Sanders served as senior advisor to President Trump in 2016 and went on to work as the White House press secretary for the former president from 2017 to 2019. An Arizona judge is denying a request by Republicans to extend voting hours in Maricopa County, Arizona. A coalition filed the motion requesting all voting centers in the county stay open until 10 due to long wait times caused by voting machine problems. Election officials in the county said about 20% of the county's vote tabulation machines were having issues Tuesday morning. This is SRN News. Virginia's 7th Congressional District is likely to be an interesting race, composed of the southern D.C. suburbs and surrounding rural areas, including the city of Fredericksburg. The seat is currently held by Democrat Abigail Spanberger, but it hasn't always been a Democrat stronghold. In fact, the seat was formerly held by Republican House Majority Leader Eric Cantor until he was beat by even more conservative David Bratt, who held the seat with comfortable majorities in 2014 and 2016. However, the seat flipped blue for the first time in decades in the blue wave of 2018 and stayed with the Democrats in 2020. However, Virginia's election last November was a massive upset. Despite being a mostly blue state, Republican Glenn Youngkin won by two points over former Democrat Governor Terry McAuliffe. In that election, Governor Youngkin won the district by five points, 52 to 47 percent. Running against Spanberger is Republican Yeso Vega, who, if elected, would be the first Latina to hold this seat in Congress. Currently, Vega is a member of the Board of Supervisors of Prince William County, Virginia. Political rates this district as lean Democrat, but anything could happen. Election night 2022. The longest evenly divided Senate is likely about to come to an end. Who will take control? I think Democrats right now would win a majority in the Senate. Republicans are still favored to capture the House. The Senate is essentially a toss-up. The race to control both houses of Congress and the Michigan State Legislature are all hanging in the balance, with economic issues playing a key role. Joe Biden owns this inflation problem. I've done everything in my power to blunt Putin's gas price hike. Abortion has inflamed tensions. And with your support, I'll sign a law codifying Roe in January. From the Hillsdale City Council. Why, why are your roads not fixed? I would not have a problem with an ordinance outlawing pitbulls in this city. To statewide ballot referendums. So it's a very dangerous, very evil proposal. Proposal two on the ballot. And races across the country. As the governor of Georgia, I will work very closely with the Federal Reserve. And when I get to the U.S. Senate, I will not forget about you. The team at Radio Free Hillsdale is watching the results that matter to you. Our eyes are there. More breaking news. In the state of Louisiana. Two different visions are on the ballot. Which will prevail? Let's keep building back better. We have to eliminate this permanent ruling class in Washington. Freedom is worth fighting for. The coverage starts... Now. Live from the Serial Center at Hillsdale College, this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, Election Night 2022. So that means polls are closing on the West Coast. WRFH LP Hillsdale, I'm Josh Barker. California, Oregon, and Washington State, as well as the northern part of Idaho, all closed just now. 
Oregon's governor's race is one to watch. You just heard uh, on that over the break. Results should be coming in shortly. Let me introduce our student panel. Uh, returning with us, Thomas McKenna, freshman from Virginia, writer for The Collegian. He's a political economy major. Kendall Hamilton is a sophomore studying politics, co-host of Elephants in the Room on Radio Free Hillsdale. And he's a member of our news team. And Chloe Noel, uh, or, or Noller, <laughs> sorry, uh, from one of the states that just closed, Washington State. She's a freshman and co-host of the Fact of Life podcast. Um, guys, certainly a lot going on tonight. It was expected that Republicans would, you know, do do a very well sweeping potentially the House. We've seen results trickling in very slowly. Uh, that's been pretty surprising. Uh, Chloe, I want to start on, with you on Washington State just closing. Uh, we have no results from there because it just closed. But in recent weeks, the polling has been very interesting there, especially no one really thinks of it much as a toss-up state, uh, and yet Real Clear Politics ranked it as a toss-up starting, I, I want to say, last week, maybe as a week before. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, do you expect it to go Republican, or you just think it will be more Republican than it has been in past years? You know, we have the Senate seat up for grabs, and you're right. It's it's been this this race has never been closer. Um, in the past years, Washington is always a given, you know, Democrat blue um, because of Seattle and and the counties over there. But um, the predictions become increasingly centrist. It's leaning more in Tiffany Smiley's favor. Um, I don't believe that it will go Republican, but I think it's just an example of how unhappy um, the Washingtonians specifically have become with the current politics in in Washington State. Uh, the battleground state of Arizona uh, certainly has a governor's and Senate races both up for grabs at the moment. Uh, Mark Kelly leading Blake Masters 58% to 39%. That's with 50% of the vote reporting there in Arizona. The governor's race, Katie Hobbs leading Carrie Lake 57% to 43%. Again, that's only half of the votes reporting and estimated. Um, that's that's certainly interesting there. Um, Ohio is another state that has a governor's race and a Senate race that we're watching. But that's kind of looking the opposite, actually. Uh, the New York Times called the governor's race for DeWine. Not really a big surprise for people. Uh, he was leading very well at the moment, uh, 63 to 37 over Nan Whaley, uh, Dayton mayor. Uh, in the Senate, it was just projected NBC called Ohio for J.D. Vance. That was expected to be a big battleground state. Well, we have a resident Ohioan uh, with us. Kendall, uh, tell us about that. Uh, Ohio was pretty close for a while, but you know the lead of Republicans seems to have been solidified. What, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, uh, as you said, it's already been called for both Mike DeWine and J.D. Vance. Um, some people thought it was a bit of a toss-up, but considering Trump won Ohio by 7%, um, almost 500,000 votes in 2020, um, it wasn't that much of a shock. Also, one of the main criticisms lobbed at J.D. Vance was that uh, he was endorsed by Trump and he was a, a MAGA Republican, as they say. Um, but according to uh, NBC, 38% of Ohio voters don't even believe that Joe Biden is the rightful president of America. Uh, so it's not completely shocking that he would have won. Uh, as an Ohio resident, as you said, I'm more concerned about local stuff. And Ohio Supreme Court is actually a big deal because it's 4-3 it's and three Republicans were up 
uh, for re-election. Uh, luckily, all of them seem to be fairly healthily ahead. Uh, but this is the first year that Ohio's placed the Supreme Court justices' party affiliation um, on the ballot. Now, you, you mentioned J.D. Vance, uh, certainly endorsed by Trump and, you know, ha- has that uh, MAGA base. Uh, the governor, that's not necessarily uh, Mike DeWine's cup of tea. Um, it, it's very interesting there. Uh, he, wh- What do you think of that? Because uh, DeWine's getting even more of the vote. I mean, he, he had over 60 percent. Uh, Vance is winning, but, you know, not by a huge margin. Um how do voters that you talk to um, look, look at that? I mean, do, do the same people seem to support DeWine and, and Vance both in the primaries, or, or, or do they just have different bases uh, of support there? Because DeWine won his primary challenge uh, against some more perhaps Trumpy uh, candidates. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Mike DeWine was really not super popular for a little bit in uh, 2020 and early 2021. There was even talks of impeaching him. Uh, but for the most part, people have calmed down. I think they were mostly just upset about COVID. And I think they've come to realize that they'd rather stick with the status quo, which has been pretty good for Ohio the past couple years, uh, than try to uproot that for someone they say. So they're certainly supporters of both. Uh, but most most Ohioans, especially Republicans, are uh, satisfied with what Mike, what Mike DeWine has done. Yeah, and uh, Michaela Ashtruth over the break uh, was talking about some of that as well. Mike DeWine was the first governor to lock down schools to um, to, to differentiate employees between uh, uh, essential and non-essential workers. Um, so, yeah, certainly in Michigan as well, people were upset at Whitmer, but it seems that has calmed down. She continues to lead as more votes tallied. Thomas... Uh, what, what are you making of all of these? Georgia as well. You see a Senate candidate that is Trump-endorsed not doing quite as well as the governor who, uh, let's just say, was not endorsed by yeah, the president. Yeah, Josh, there's a huge split right now in the Georgia Senate and governor races. If we look to the Senate race, we have Herschel Walker leading Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, 49.3% to 48.7%. It's still a close race with 84% of the votes in. But if we look over to the governor's race, we see a much different story. Republican Brian Kemp, the current incumbent, is leading 54% to 45% with 75% of the votes in. So that's a nine-point lead for Governor Kemp. That's a very different story than what we're seeing in the Senate race. And I think that difference between candidates who are closer to Trump or more distance for Trump is going to be a main story over the next few days as Republicans try to process where they won and where they lost. Changing subjects, you're from Virginia, as we mentioned. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on there. The 2nd, 7th, and 10th congressional districts all uh, have national eyes watching them. Some of those races have been called. Uh, Thomas, what's the latest there? We knew Virginia was going to be close, and that's the story tonight. Uh, we see that all three of these races have been called by at least one outlet. If we look to the second district near Virginia Beach, we see Republican Jen Kiggins is projected to win by CNN, 52% to 47.8% right now with 99% of the votes in. But if we look over to the seventh district of Virginia, we see the New York Times projecting Democrat incumbent Abigail Spamberger to win. Right now, she's at about 51.9% 
over Yesley Vega's 48.1%, with over 95% of the votes in. But if we look up to my home district of Virginia 10th, we also see a Democrat winning. Jennifer Wexton will keep her seat right now with 52.9% over the 47% of Republican hung cow. So that's two Democrat wins in Virginia in those high-profile races with one Virginia seat flipped for Republicans. So a disappointing night for Republicans as they really wanted to flip another seat, possibly the seventh, to see a red wave throughout the night. Now, what, what are your thoughts? Because Governor Youngkin, of course, won last year in 2021. Of course, it's an odd uh, election season because it's not midterms, nor is it the presidential race. When you have your governor's races, uh, it's always the year after a major presidential election. Do you think something has changed or is it more turnout? As I guess to word my question differently, is it uh, voters... Uh, Preferences are changing in these districts uh, more towards the Democrats, perhaps because of abortion or other things that have happened since 21? Or do you think this is just Democrats hadn't turned out as much in 21, but now they are turning out in 22? I think it's safe to say that this is really about turnout. I think Glenn Youngkin really caught lightning in a bottle, whether it be with the Loudoun County public school scandal or whether it also be with Democrat turnout being low in an off election year or also President Biden not really being favored and not looking good in the Democrat image one year ago. So what we're seeing when it comes to that Youngkin race is that Youngkin really did have a lot of things going in his favor. And right now, especially with the Dobbs decision back in June, we're seeing especially suburban women in places like Prince William County turning out for candidates like Abigail Spanberger. So I think this really is about turnout, but we can't underestimate how much the issues play a role here, especially given the demographics of these different districts. We have been talking about the race in Wisconsin uh, on and off throughout the night. Uh, Mandela Barnes, the Democrat, was up for a little while. 67% of the votes are in. And that's flipped. Ron Johnson now on top. Uh, it's not tied. He's he's at 50.8%, still has a healthy 30,000 vote margin. But again, only 67% of the vote in. That, of course, could change. Um, that's the state of Wisconsin. In Michigan, 30% of the vote's in. Not much more than at the beginning of the segment. Hopefully, we'll have more for you after the break. When we come back, we will have Micah Hart, Connor Bolanos, and Josh Hypes with more Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We'll see you after the break. SRN News. I'm Tasha Stevens. The midterm election shaping up to be a red wave with a number of key victories for Republicans. Bob Agnew joins us live from the SRN News Decision Desk. Bob? Tasha, former President Trump so happy with the results so far, he gave a quick rundown this past hour in Mar-a-Lago. And we have a lot of other good ones going out there. Herschel's leading right now. So we have a lot of uh, a lot of big races going on right Former now. Former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders elected Arkansas governor, becoming the first woman to lead the state. Sanders defeated Democratic nominee Chris Jones in the race for governor in her predominantly Republican home state, where former President Trump remains popular. Sanders has been heavily favored to win the race, which also included Libertarian nominee Ricky Dale Harrington. Sanders shattered state fundraising records with her campaign, which focused primarily on national issues. 
That's Bernie Bennett reporting two major Republican victories in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis outpacing Democrat Charlie Crist and Republican Marco Rubio winning a third term. I'm Bob Agnew live at the SR News Decision Desk. Tasha. Thanks, Bob. Also at SRNNews.com, the Orlando Sanford International Airport is closing due to Tropical Storm Nicole. Airport officials are asking that people not go to the airport under any circumstances. They say they are not offering shelter from the storm. If anyone was scheduled to travel through SFB, they're being asked to contact their airline to reschedule. The airport will shut down Wednesday at 4 p.m. Nicole expected to hit Florida's Atlantic coast tomorrow as a Category 1 hurricane. Elon Musk sells around $4 billion worth of shares of Tesla. Securities and Exchange Commission filings show that Musk sold almost 20 million shares of that company. The sale comes after his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter and his taking the company private. This is SRN News. Anti-Semitism is increasing on America's campuses. The Anti-Defamation League says attacks on Jews and anti-Israeli activities at colleges and universities are on the rise, with 350 recorded incidents during the 2021-22 school year alone. Jonathan Greenblatt, who leads the ADL, says, quote, The anti-Semitic vitriol directed at pro-Israel students is deeply unsettling and makes our colleges and universities feel less safe and secure for Jewish students. University leaders must respond. Michael Harrington, SRN News. Well, how religious voters align could help decide what polls suggest is a narrow race in Georgia that will help settle which party controls the Senate the next two years. According to Pew Research, about two out of three adults in the state consider themselves highly religious. Republican Herschel Walker warns that spiritual warfare is being waged in America, and he offers himself to voters as a warrior for God. His Democratic opponent, Senator Raphael Warnock, is a pastor. This is SRN News. California settles a lawsuit against a German company stemming from the emission scandal that tarred Volkswagen and Fiat Chrysler. German auto supplier Bosch will pay $25 million to settle allegations by the state and California Air Resources Board under a court complaint and settlement agreement. Volkswagen and Fiat Chrysler installed devices that made it seem like the vehicles were meeting emissions requirements. But the vehicles actually polluted at many times the legal limit. His correspondent Jeremy House reporting. The complaint says Bosch knew or should have known that automakers were violating environmental and consumer protection laws. Well, more Americans are falling behind on their car payments. According to TransUnion, the percentage of auto loans that are at least 60 days delinquent hit the highest rate in more than a decade in the third quarter. Inflation and the rise in new car prices have many people struggling. TransUnion says the biggest impact is among subprime borrowers who have the lowest credit scores. More details at srnnews.com. This is the 2022 midterm election live on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Here on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. The results keep coming in Michigan very slowly. We promised you right before the break we would have more. And 31% of the vote is now in, 1% more than when we went to break. Uh, Governor Whitmer still in the lead, 51.9%. To Tudor Dixon's 46.5%. Um, she, again, is still behind Proposal 3. Proposal 3, the constitutional right to reproductive freedom, Yes is currently at 55% of the vote. Um, interestingly, 
not not terribly important, but uh, Attorney General and Secretary of State. Uh, for a while, they were ahead of Whitmer, outperforming her by just about 1%. Dana Nessel is now right on par with Governor Whitmer, again, the Democrat for Attorney General here in the state of Michigan. Secretary of State, however, Jocelyn Benson, 53% to uh, Republican uh, 44%. That's a 32% of the votes in on that race, certainly outperforming the governor. Um, Join me on our student panel. We have Connor Bolanos once again, Winston Churchill Fellow, senior and host of Defense Now and History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillsdale. We also have uh, Josh Hypes, the political correspondent for the Hillsdale Collegian, and Micah Hart, the assistant news director at Radio Free Hillsdale. Connor, tell me about uh, what you're seeing in Pennsylvania. What's going on there right now? Yeah, Pennsylvania started off the night being a bit of a very heavy uh, Fetterman lead in the double-digit points. It's really closed the gap since then. Right now with 72% reporting, Fetterman is barely ahead, 49% to 48%. But the New York Times at least still considers the seat to be a likely Democrat one. Now, overall, again, we've said this a few times, red wave was kind of the expectation Micah, is that what we're seeing? Well, we're not seeing that right now. It's it's much closer than I think we were thinking it to be. And there are many reasons we could speculate as to that why that is. And one of them may be former President Donald Trump. You know, there are still never Trumpers out there or just people who don't feel comfortable voting for a Republican because of the Trump part of the party still the presence being known so that could be part of it and it's really going to be interesting too how close the senate is to see the impact that trump has had on that and really where we go there especially if georgia does go to a runoff president biden has uh put a lot of his messaging around this election as a defense of democracy his speech out in philadelphia as well as his speech earlier this or earlier last week uh, a week ago he said, you know, essentially that's what's at, at stake in this ballot. And some of the early exit polls, which, of course, those are always, uh, you know, not not totally reliable by any means. But they suggested that those points resonated with the voters, at least the voters today. Um, Josh Hypes, a political correspondent for the Collegian. Do you think that that's part of what's changing what may have been a red wave? Um, the post January 6th um, response from Republicans, uh, do you think that might be at play here, or, or do you think that's, that's barking up the wrong tree? I, I really don't think that that's what we're seeing here. I think that it's much more directed around the messaging of reproductive freedom and certain other thing, other things like I – don't, I don't even think that there's much of a climate change angle to the Democrats' message this, uh, this midterm, but I really do think that – um, it's more directed around those social issues that we're seeing is mobilizing some larger force. And um, in addition to that, I, I think that Republicans really haven't delivered on a point of what policies that they, they plan to uh, um, actually put into law if they, if they take over the House and um, other than just stop Biden's spending. So I, I think that that's something that we definitely need to be looking at as – one of the things that could be stopping Republicans from really truly taking advantage of this midterm. The state of New Hampshire called for Senator uh, 
Hassan earlier this evening. Governor Sununu was floated to run against her for the Senate. His critique, exactly what you said, uh, Mr. Hypes, as far as uh, he said, what I'm paraphrasing here, but when, when he was asked by a reporter, you know, what, what exactly are the Republicans running on <laughs> for Senate? Uh, he, of course, has been called to be the governor of New Hampshire. Uh, it would have been interesting he, whether or not he would have won had he run for Senate, but for uh, the lack of such proposals. Um, breaking news for our uh, Hillsdale residents, uh, Michigan's 5th Congressional District has been called for incumbent and Republican Tim Wahlberg. Uh, we have only 28% of the vote reporting, but he's ahead with 63% of the vote in our district. Uh, so that, that has been called, not terribly surprising, but definitely worth taking note of. Um, but while Republican Tim Wahlberg may be maintaining his seat, we are discussing up here, Connor, the, I mean, the Republicans losing the Senate is definitely a much more real possibility now than before. New York Times still says Republicans are poised to take the House. That's still the anticipation. Uh, the polling makes that makes sense in that a lot of the toss-up states, even if you they all went to Democrats, Republicans, the lean R seats were still mostly uh, would give them a little bit of a majority. What do you think the Republican losses uh, potentially in the Senate or maybe even uh, more widespread than that? What, is, what does that mean to you? What, what's your takeaway seeing th- that possibility? Very real now, something that we definitely had not been thinking perhaps even a few hours ago. Yeah, I think that what we would see mainly if the Democrats managed to win the Senate at the end of the night, I think would be going to the point that Micah made earlier was really kind of a rebuke, you could say, to an extent of Donald Trump. While abortion, I agree wholeheartedly with Josh, uh, is definitely, I think, a factor to play into here. And we've certainly seen that. I think if you look at some of the two of the races, for example, Arizona and Pennsylvania, the governor candidates have been much more vocal than the senator candidates, for example, about the twenty the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And, for example, have been much more vocal about their endorsements from Trump. And both of those candidates are being outpaced by their Republican Senate counterparts by very good margins. Uh, Mastriano, for example, is losing in his two home counties to Mehmet Oz. And so I really think that, you know, uh, it's really a combination of things. I really think the Republicans kind of were hoping that the issue of inflation would pretty much carry the day for them, as usually it has. But I think they've probably underestimated the strength of the uh, Dobbs decision issue. And I think they've definitely, in regards to the primaries, especially in states that went to Biden in 2020, have kind of rebuked the more moderate option that perhaps would have had a broader appeal in favor of more of the farther right Trump-aligned candidate. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Uh, Our eyes are continually on that New York Times needle, Senate and House forecast. Senate still a toss-up. It's going to stay there. Uh, But the House staying at leaning Republican. uh, As far as what the New York Times is ranking, uh, it's interesting Right now, they have 216 House seats uh, where Republicans are favored, 204 where Democrats are favored, and then 15 that are uh, just simply toss-ups. Uh, of those that you know, I'm looking at on the screen, most of them Republicans are up by under 1%, and we've got between 50 65% reporting there. Um, so, Micah, this suggests that Republicans, it's likely they will take the House. Um, 
but not with much room to spare. Um, and certainly with defecting votes uh, from the Republican races that are, are possible, uh, do you think that Democrats might be able to get through uh, some, though compromised, uh, legislation uh, that could potentially be critical uh, for their running in 24 on uh, certain accomplishments? I, I think it's going to be tough, but I think they're going to be able to do it at some points. I mean, if you look at some of the places that may go Republican, it may be for a representative who may be a little less Republican than a lot of the other uh, members may be. So I think you could see some compromise, but I think the Republicans are going to have to, if they want to um, keep to their promises as they've run on before and as they've been saying I think they're going to have to stick their ground and if they do that then it's going to be a lot less compromised and I think you're going to see a lot more gridlock especially if the Senate does go Democrat once again All right. well uh, the New York Times estimate uh, 209 Democratic seats 226 Republican seats that's what they're suggesting at the moment will happen Uh, But we don't know. We'll see. There's certainly a lot of toss-ups that we're looking at. Right now, we're going to go to a short break, after which you will hear from Dr. Wolfram about Michigan State fiscal policy. We're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we'll see you after the break. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Our collective futures depends on your willingness to uphold your duties as a citizen, to vote. We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. For the free and secret ballot, is the real keystone of our American constitutional system. And the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Across the country, citizens voted in large numbers. They showed a watching world the vitality of America's democracy and the strides we have made toward a more perfect union. Your vote is precious almost sacred it is the most powerful non-violent tool we have to create a more perfect union get out and vote we need every single one of you to get out and to vote most of all no matter what vote i want you to decide right here right now unless you've done it already that you are going to vote. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM election night coverage. I'm your host, Josh Barker. Joining me is Gary Wolfram. He's a William Simon Professor of Economics and Public Policy here at Hillsdale College, former Deputy State Treasurer for the state of Michigan. Dr. Wolfram, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to talk about state fiscal policy. State is in surprisingly good financial state. We're not running deficits. 
Earlier this year, we had an extra $1 billion just sitting around, and the legislature decided to appropriate it for various projects and things in a controversial supplemental appropriations bill. Uh, Now, I'm not going to ask you about specifics there, but uh, one of the big things coming out of that was the resignation of House Appropriations Chair Representative Thomas Albert, who said he couldn't serve on leadership anymore in the state house because he thought that kind of spending and really any increase in spending was imprudent. He thinks we're on the verge of a recession or maybe even, he says, a depression. And so we should be saving furiously as a state instead of spending Do you think he's right? And I mean, earlier tonight, you talked about the need to increase revenue sharing. The state gives more tax dollars to local governments. How can we do that while being fiscally responsible? Well, I think what you do, I think that we're going to have a recession, but not till the end of 23. I think that there's uh, still, you know, the labor market's strong. But I do think that rather than, and of course, the state got all this COVID relief money. And I do think that the state should be setting aside some money because we're all going to eventually hit a recession. But I still think that local units of government, which is why I'm running for city council, um, local units of government need the money. And that, as I you know, mentioned, revenue sharing has collapsed. Uh, the taxable values have collapsed. And so local units of government have been definitely physically stressed And so what we ought to do is go out there and increase the revenue sharing and get the local units of government to where they're fiscally in shape. When we get another recession into 23, the local, I mean, City of Hillsdale (laughs) is not going to be doing as well uh, Mm -hmm. than if what you had was you at least could get property values back up. And 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 like I said, we're seeing some of that with new build, you know, new housing some housing on above the ground level um, in these new buildings, you know, I think that's a real positive for Hillsdale. But Hillsdale certainly could use an increase in the revenue sharing as could all the other cities, villages, and townships. Could that destroy some of our economic development projects, though? I mean, Kiefer House opens and then, ah, man, we're in a recession. I mean, not not too many people are going to say, oh, I want to go vacation to the city of Hillsdale in a recession. Right, it could be. Um, Although Hillsdale is a little bit unique in that what this is going to be is a 34-room boutique hotel. And I don't know if anybody's parents were here over the weekend. (laughs) Um, They were probably not staying in the city of Hillsdale unless they got an Airbnb or something. Like that, right? Um, I was talking to one uh, parent that was happy to be within 35 minute drive of Hillsdale. Even if we have a recession, there'll be one of the things the Kiefer House is going to be doing and using the Dawn Theater that connected up with that is have weddings and mm. other events. Like, I'll make a plug for my wife, but she was instrumental in bringing Jim Malcolm, one of the Scottish uh, guitar player, and his wife. Uh, on tour, they're they're on tour from uh, from Scotland, and they were going to be in Ann Arbor, and they were going to be in uh, East Lansing, and she got them to stop over in Hillsdale, and the place was packed. So I think there's enough events that the Kiefer House will do fine. Now, before you go, I want to mention your book, A Capitalist Manifesto, Understanding the Market Economy and Dispending Liberty. It's available here at the college bookstore or online retailers as well. In your book, it's basically a condensed version of our uh, introductory course, Introduction to Political Economy, Econ uh, 105, in a a book. In that class, we go over supply and demand, equilibrium, and then you go through some thinkers, Bastiat, Mises, Hayek. And that last portion of the class I want to talk about, we read in class how the West grew rich. And you talk a little bit about that in your book. You got a chapter on lessons from history. 
Many say that the state of Michigan is on the decline. We've lost tons of manufacturing jobs. We've struggled in the COVID recovery. Some are arguing in an active debate in the state legislature that corporate welfare is the only way, the SOAR fund, it's the only answer to getting us back on track. What should the state learn from history? Is corporate welfare the right answer? They should learn that what is capitalism? It's not big government gets together with big business and cuts deals, right? It's limited government and it is a market way of allocating resources. And how could Michigan do better economically? Michigan could do better economically if it were to reduce its overall tax burden and to reduce the amount of government intervention, as Mises talked about it. And that's not something that the current governor has spoken a lot about. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, Michigan should just take a look at where it's been successful. And, uh, for example, if you look at the Reagan revolution, it's useful to get on YouTube and there's a 16-minute YouTube video uh, where Reagan gives his farewell address and goes through where he had talked about originally as government's not the the, the solution to the problem, it is the problem. I think that to uh, focus on that, and then if you are Ford Motor Company and you see that, wow, you know, the state of Michigan is reducing its interventionism and it is reducing the uh, Michigan business tax, then what you'd get is you'd get people wanting to move in. All you got to do is see how many people are leaving California to go to Texas right. and what companies are moving out of state of New York and, and California to move to Texas and Florida. And so I think if we just realize where did you get the big increase in economic growth? You got it where market capitalism really developed. And, you know, I call it the hockey stick of human history, like Don Boudreau talked about. So if whoever wins the governorship would make that clear that what Michigan's going to do is it's going to set up the uh, state government so that it encourages economic activity, that it will reduce government regulation, then I think that it will do better. Thank you again so much for coming on, Dr. Wolfram. You've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, our live election night coverage, and we'll be back shortly. Thank you very much. In one of the nastiest races fought in the country, two incumbent representatives are facing off after being drawn together during the once-a-decade redistricting in the South Texas 34th District. Republican Congresswoman Myra Flores is facing Democratic Congressman Vincente Gonzalez. Ms. Flores was originally elected in June in an upset during a special election after the incumbent Democratic representative resigned. Interestingly, Elon Musk, who lives in the district, has claimed that Ms. Flores was the first Republican he ever voted for. South Texas was one of the few areas nationwide where President Trump saw large gains compared to his 2016 performance, due in large part to the heavy Latino population in the area, which over the last few decades has trended increasingly Republican. The close nature of this race has drawn in large amounts of spending and inflamed tensions. Mr. Gonzalez has been under fire for attacking Ms. Flores because she is an immigrant who was born in Mexico. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 2022 live election night coverage. 11.37 p.m. on the East Coast here in Hillsdale. I'm Josh Parker and you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM live election night coverage. It has been quite the night and in the state of Michigan, we've been watching and the results seem to have been 
staying pretty consistent. Governor Whitmer up in the governor's race, 37% of the vote in. She's up 51.2% to Tudor Dixon's 47%. That race has been called by several outlets in the favor of Governor Whitmer for a second-term Michigan governor. Uh, Again, Governor Whitmer has been called to win her race. Um, Despite uh, being ahead, she's being outperformed by Proposal 3, the right to reproductive freedom amendment, currently 38% of the vote in, 54% yes, 46% no. Uh, We've been pointing out slightly about the Attorney General and Secretary of State's race in comparison because uh, we're comparing the Senate race and the uh, governor's races all over, but for Michigan, since we're in Michigan, it's also interesting to compare the down-ballot races. Uh, Dana Nessel, our current attorney general, the Democrat running, is trailing Governor Whitmer. She's only, uh, not by much, she's at 50%, so still likely to win. Republican uh, is at 47.7%, 36% of the vote in. That's interesting. Secretary of State, the opposite story. Jocelyn Benson, 53%. Republicans at 45%. Again, Governor Whitmer is at 51%, right in the middle between Nestle and Benson. Interesting results here in Michigan. We've talked a lot about Prop 3 cultural issues Uh, and all of that, uh, generally how that's impacting this election. Uh, And we want to talk a little bit more about that with our panel tonight. Joining me again, Gabriel Powell, senior studying politics, Maddie Grace Watson, freshman studying politics and rhetoric, and Chloe Noller, American studies major and freshman. Both Maddie Grace and Chloe are the hosts for Fact of Life on Radio Free Hillsdale. Gabriel, we've talked about all these issues tonight uh, as far as culture goes with public perception, but some of this goes even deeper than just the issues themselves. Um, We've discussed off the air um, an article that came out uh, just over a week ago from The Intercept uh, as a piece, Truth Cops is the title. It talks about the disinformation governance board that was established at the Department of Homeland Security, some of the history behind that. Uh, tell us about that, because I, I think a fair amount of people probably haven't even heard of this article. I'm sure they, more people have heard of the Disinformation Governance Board, a real board that was created in the federal government. Um, tell us about kind of what that article talked about and, and some of your takes on that. Certainly. Well, I think you framed it very well, actually, by talking about public perception. And what the DHS has been doing appears to be kind of trying to influence that. So what The Intercept reported, as you said, a bit over a week ago is that the DHS, in conjunction to some extent with the FBI, has actually been working with social media companies since at least the 2020 election and the lead-up to that to censor stories on social media to the point that Facebook or Meta, the parent company, as well as some others, had set up these portals for government officials to get in contact with them and tell them flag posts. And it's always very nebulous into what they're actually saying you have to do and what they're just suggesting. But the effect is much the same in that the government is colluding with social media companies in regular contact with them, weekly calls, monthly meetings, and telling them what you can and can't do. I think the foremost example of this during the 2020 election would have been the Hunter Biden laptop story that the New York Post had. And then as soon as they brought that up, it was basically nuked right away 
New York Post was locked out of their Twitter account. Facebook throttled its sharing. So as you said at the beginning of the segment, it's a matter of perception and what the government is doing very, very close to the edge. And I would, I would think going over the edge of what the First Amendment allows in that they're co-opting private entities and essentially turning them into state entities and preventing information from sp- spreading. Radio Free Wholesale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker. That's Gabriel Powell. Also with us, Maddie Grace Watson and Chloe Newler. Uh, we have a few results for all of you. In an upset, uh, it has been project- projected by ABC that Ohio's 13th congressional district will go to Amelia Sykes, who is a Democrat. Um, certainly the state Senate race has, as we've mentioned previously, been called for J.D. Vance. That's the Republican. The gubernatorial race, by pretty war- wide margins, has been called for Mike DeWine. Um, in Ohio's first district, another Democrat upset. Uh, Democrat Greg Landsman is projected to win over Republican Steve Jabot, uh, the, who is the incumbent. Um, in uh, This is from our, our war room. Uh, according to, to 538, both candidates, as of immediately prior to tonight, they had under a 20% chance of winning. Uh, so that that's a pretty big upset. Uh, they beat those odds, uh, both Sykes and Landsman in the state of Ohio. Um, Chloe and Maddie Grace, turning to you, uh, this conversation on both the public perception here and cultural issues more broadly, um, st- starting with just the general issue of social media and how certainly that is people have talked about how that has impacted our elections in 2016 social media perhaps uh, stole the election we were told uh, by uh, Russian advertisements uh, against Hillary Clinton for and for Donald Trump uh, but memeing as, as propaganda uh, social media just disseminating all kinds of information. What role do you see it playing? You know, for for both sides of the aisle, uh, when it comes to shaping perception here and uh, shaping election results in the long run. Yeah, I think I've seen social media definitely grow its influence a lot, especially as this new generation is getting to the age where they can vote. I know for me, I saw kind of the height of what I saw as a problem come during 2020, and I still see it. But what I've seen a lot of on social media is a lot of like misinformation being spread. People are putting claims out there about candidates, about propositions being proposed, and they're not putting sources. And so you see people just being spoon-fed information and not having the whole truth behind it. And um, I know I have honestly, I have seen this getting better, but one thing, you know, people have said, oh, let's have the social media companies regulate, like, regulate that information. Let's have, maybe even have the government regulate that information. And I don't think that's the right answer because what we should be doing and what I've seen people doing more is looking to those original sources themselves. And whenever, if you're going to share something on social media, if you're going to do something like um, supporting or like denouncing a candidate or a proposition sharing the actual information of that but i've definitely seen people getting their information for how they will vote on things from social media and a lot of times it can be um making light of the situation or making fun of it and it just being completely false which is a huge problem that i've seen in this upcoming generation getting ready to vote 
Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Uh, as an economics major, you know, the one thing that comes to mind with social media is, you know, one of our big things, transaction costs. It reduces the transaction costs between individuals. I can more easily share information with you. Uh, and in some cases, that's worked uh, perhaps in conservatives' favor as far as the election last year in Virginia. Critical race theory in textbooks, you take a picture and then post it on Twitter, it spreads. Um, certainly images and videos of drag queen story hours and things like that have gone around. Um, so th- that's something that can be spread more easily. But then you have other things like, you know, as memeing has been uh, in on the rise, many talking about how it is, people are getting their political views and information from uh, these just different snippets that are basically memes on social media. Uh, just absolutely fascinating. Chloe, as we're rounding this out, how do you see uh, both social media and then just the culture war generally impacting this election and, and perhaps uh, just the general societal trends in, in one direction or the other? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. It's, it's startling to see because, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking about um, – the young people of our generation getting their information on how to vote or, or whatever um, because of memes or just this kind of propaganda we're seeing. Um, it's interesting because of the, the way that social media is built with the algorithms. Like when you start seeing something, um, you're going to keep seeing what you want to see. You're going to dig yourself deeper into a hole and you're not going to see the other side of the story or what's, what's going on. And um, I think that's so detrimental um, and really... Um, just increases that that uh, uh, that just the polarization. The, yeah, the polarization um, on on both sides. So um, I just think it's it's important for us to um, be critical in how we're we're viewing um, such stories and such propaganda and such like that. Radio Free Hillsdale one hundred one point seven FM. Before we go, I want to mention some high level numbers here with the House and Senate races. Uh, right now, Republicans are favored to win 49 of the Senate seats. Democrats favored to win 48. It leaves three toss-ups. Well, that means the control of the Senate is as of yet unknown. On the House side, Republicans favored to win 217, just shy of a majority. Democrats at 204, 14 toss-ups. Uh, all of that will be very interesting. We'll be watching that as we go into our final segment in just a few minutes. Again, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker. We're going to have a short break, and we'll be right back. SRN News. I'm Tasha Stevens. The midterm election shaping up to be a red wave with a number of key victories for Republicans. Bob Agnew joins us live from the SRN News Decision Desk. Bob? Tasha, former President Trump so happy with the results so far, he gave a quick rundown this past hour in Mar-a-Lago. And we have a lot of other good ones going out there. Herschel's leading right now. 
So we have a lot of uh, a lot of big races going on. right Former now. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders elected Arkansas governor, becoming the first woman to lead the state. Sanders defeated Democratic nominee Chris Jones in the race for governor in her predominantly Republican home state where former President Trump remains popular. Sanders has been heavily favored to win the race, which also included Libertarian nominee Ricky Dale Harrington. Sanders shattered state fundraising records with her campaign, which focused primarily on national issues. That's Bernie Bennett reporting two major Republican victories in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis outpacing Democrat Charlie Crist and Republican Marco Rubio winning a third term. I'm Bob Agnew, live at the SR News Decision Desk. Tasha. Thanks, Bob. Also at SRNNews.com, the Orlando Sanford International Airport is closing due to Tropical Storm Nicole. Airport officials are asking that people not go to the airport under any circumstances. They say they are not offering shelter from the storm. If anyone was scheduled to travel through SFB, they're being asked to contact their airline to reschedule. The airport will shut down Wednesday at 4 p.m. Nicole expected to hit Florida's Atlantic coast tomorrow as a Category 1 hurricane. Elon Musk sells around $4 billion worth of shares of Tesla. Securities and Exchange Commission filings show that Musk sold almost 20 million shares of that company. The sale comes after his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter and his taking the company private. This is SRN News. America is likely to see many firsts tonight as races from around the country are called with both parties working hard to increase the diversity of their caucuses. Here are five notable examples. A major national milestone is about to be crossed. 106 years since Montana sent the first woman to Congress, Vermont will likely become the last state to do so, with Democrat Becca Bayland leading in a race for Vermont's singular U.S. House seat, which is rated safe for her by election forecasters. New York's Long Island-based 3rd Congressional District, rated lean Democrat by most forecasts, is the first race in American history where both major party candidates are openly LGBTQ. If Republican celebrity TV physician Dr. Mehmet Oz prevails in the hard-fought Pennsylvania Senate election tonight, he will become the first Muslim elected to the Senate and the first ever Muslim Republican elected to Congress. Caroline Leavitt, a Republican in New Hampshire's first district, has a chance to become the youngest female ever elected to Congress. She is 25, the minimum age to serve. This race is reigned lean D. If Marcy Kaptur, a 40-year Democratic incumbent from Ohio's Toledo-based 9th District, wins re-election. She will become the longest-serving female member of Congress ever, surpassing Barbara Mikulski of Maryland. This race is rated Lean Democrat. This is the 2022 midterm election live on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Good evening. It is 11.52 p.m. here on the East Coast. We are approaching midnight, eight minutes away. Uh, That means polls close in Alaska, but we're not going to get any results from that anytime soon. But that also means that we're approaching the end of our live coverage. So uh, for this last segment... I am joined by some people who you have heard from before. Luke Spangler, her junior studying French and economics. Avery Noel, co-president of the Hillsdale College Democrats and an econ junior as well. And Micah Hart, assistant news director for Radio Free Hillsdale. Um, 
one of the interesting races we've been looking at tonight has been in Wisconsin. A lot of the focus there has been on the Senate seat, which has at first it looked in favor perhaps of the Democrats. And then uh, it looks at the moment still that Ron Johnson is in the lead. Uh, just a slight, a slight lead. So anything could still happen because not all the votes are counted. But we're at 79%. No one's called the race. But he's at 51.4%. Mandela Barnes, 48.6%. A few of these races that are going okay or fairly well for Republican Senate candidates. The governors are doing much better Republican-wise. Wisconsin is not necessarily one of those states. At the moment, Tony Evers, 50.3%. Tim Michaels, the Republican, 48.7%. Performing worse than Senate, uh, Senate incumbent Ron Johnson. Micah, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in Wisconsin, what you're hearing from uh, perhaps some of our Wisconsin residents here. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it's about the same numbers just flipped with the Senate and the governor's race in Wisconsin. It's also really interesting because in this governor's race, it was a very heated primary with Rebecca Cleefish and um, Tim Michaels really going at it for that coveted Republican um, nomination. And Tim Michaels was backed by President, former President Trump, and is losing. And so it's really interesting to see that shift and um, how he is losing compared to Ron Johnson, who is the incumbent, doing pretty well and holding numbers that Tony Evers is holding right now in Wisconsin. So, I mean, it is too close to call, as we said, but it's looking like it's going to be a flip with the Senate going maybe leaning right now towards Republicans and Democrats doing better in the governorship there. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, Michigan results. We've talked a fair amount about Governor Whitmer was called uh, to win the gubernatorial race there. Prop 3 hasn't been called yet, but it remains in the lead, and it was in the lead in polling, 54% in favor. We haven't talked about the other two proposals. I want to put that out there as well. Prop 1, adjusting term limits, 64% yes. Prop 2 in favor of certain voting measures, which we discussed earlier tonight, 57% yes. Again, all the polling ahead of tonight suggested that all three propositions would prevail. Uh, So far, we have just under 40% of the vote in. It seems like that is bearing out, but with so little in, uh, nobody's calling that yet. And, you know, we won't know final results quite yet. Um, Avery, how has tonight been compared to what you had expected? Yeah, I think honestly tonight has been somewhat what I expected in terms of the overcorrection in polling bias that we saw. I think in 2016 and in 2020, you saw a large polling bias in favor of Democrats, which is why people are so shocked when Donald Trump wins in 2016 and carries a lot of states he wasn't projected to in 2020. Um, and outlets such as 538 um, and other outlets have seemingly overcorrected uh, in their polling bias towards Republicans. Um, and I think Democrats have got to be overjoyed based on how the night has gone, considering how unpopular their sitting president is, how high inflation is, 
they are shockingly on the verge of a Senate hold and maybe even a Senate gain, depending on how Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin fall. In addition, the House is continuously leaning less and less towards a Republican majority and more towards a slight majority of Republicans in the House. Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Josh Barker here. Three minutes remaining. Uh, Herschel Walker is ahead in the U.S. Senate race in Georgia with 49.2%. Of course, 49% is not enough. You have to get 50 plus one uh, in order to avoid a runoff. So that is likely to go there. But it it is interesting, despite many of his setbacks in Georgia, he is ahead of Warnock, who's at 48.8%. Luke, we kind of heard a grim uh, view for... Republicans from uh, Avery, do you think that they're, uh, that Republicans should be uh, very doomy and gloomy after tonight? I mean, no question. It's uh, way below what they thought they would get and way below what they should get for a midterm. But I will say there are a couple bright spots for Republicans. Um, in New York, um, several House seats that were supposed to go to Democrats, um, Republicans are actually doing very well in some of the New York House races. And I would say Republicans, looking at their candidates, um, certainly some of the candidates that are general consensus is they were not very good at all. Um, just extreme positions or whatever it was. Um, but I think Republicans can look at their candidates and say they had some really good ones, and like Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio and Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, and several others that, if they get their act together in future elections, they know that voters are re- ready and willing to uh, listen to their message on inflation and other issues if they get the right candidates. Now, one of the things we're, we're talking about, potential runoff here in Georgia, it's been rumored for probably the last year. Donald Trump is inevitably going to announce uh, his candidacy for 2024. I mean, he's uh, majorly hinted it, let's just say. Uh, but he, you know, he hasn't officially said anything. Micah, do you think he will announce, and do you think that could have an impact? Could, would he announce before the Georgia runoff? Let me be very clear what I'm asking mm-hmm. here. Uh, and, and would that, if he announced before the runoff, have an impact on Georgia? I think the president has made it very, the former president has made it very clear that November 15th is going to be the day he announces he's going to run for president in 2024. And I think that it, it may have an impact. I mean, we see how... Brian Kemp did pretty well tonight, um, and we're seeing this struggle right now with Herschel Walker. It, it's so interesting to see how Trump's influence plays out. And, you know, it, d- that doesn't go to say that Herschel Walker would lose in a runoff, but I think Trump will influence that race pretty significantly. And I think there are still people who, you know, maybe were like, maybe I'll vote Republican, but then they're like, oh, he's Trump back. No. So I think that is going to play a significant role into it. I personally think he should, if he wants to announce, wait a bit or reconsider running, whatever that may be. All right. Well, uh, that is midnight. So uh, with it being 12, that's all that we have for tonight. This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. WRFH LP Hillsdale. I'm Josh Barker. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll have more uh, throughout the week on the results from our news team. Uh, Thank you again for joining us, and we will see you again.